first time I spoke with Kerry was about an issue I was having with the administration. He listened to me patiently, and I remember feeling much better immediately after I got off the phone with him. Over the past couple of months, perhaps years, I've seen him represent the faculty's interest to the college bargaining team. I went into this interview wanting to know more about his motivation, about why he chooses to volunteer his time as the chief negotiator. I was very pleasantly surprised when the conversation unexpectedly took a turn. I got to know Carrie High, the family man. It was an absolute treat to see him interact with his young children. However, the highlight of the entire conversation for me was when Carrie and his wife, Jennifer, were talking about each other. It was a great feel-good moment to see them be so enamored with each other. Their respect for each other was more than obvious. My only hope is that Carrie doesn't try to fix his microwave by himself. You'll find more of what I'm talking about towards the end of the podcast. Take a listen. Originally born in North Carolina, right? And uh, my family moved to Central Florida when I was six years old, which was in the, the mid 80s, and um, grew up in, in, in Central Florida in a town called Winter Park. It's close, close to Orlando. And um, after graduating high school, uh, went on to University of Florida for undergrad and, and law school. And um, from there, after, after finishing law school in 2004, um, moved to Tampa for my first job as a, as a young attorney um, working at the public defender's office in Hillsborough County. And um, I lived in Tampa for about six years. I guess it was the, it was the fall of 04 through, through the spring of 2010. And it was during that time that I met my, my spouse, my, my wife. And um, we moved together down here to South Florida. Uh, a lot of her family lives here in, in Palm Beach County and Broward County. And so part of once, once we got married and you know, she wanted to, to get back to where her family was and her sisters were having children. And so we, we moved down this way and I've been here in, in, uh, in Palm Beach County since, I guess it was, it was the start of 2011. So, so I, I, again, was working in, in Broward County, but living, living here since, since 2011. So going on almost 10 years now. And, and um, I mean, I guess that's the, the very boring version of, of how I got to Palm Beach State, or at least got to the, uh, the county where Palm Beach State is located. And um, along the lines around 2011, 2012, I started teaching. I got really, really lucky. And it was something that I had been interested in I mean, going back to, to undergrad and just had never, um, I guess I'd never made the connection. I'd never hit. I'd applied for some teaching jobs, um, a few back when I was in, in Tampa, and it never, it never lined up, you know, no interviews, nothing like that. And then fascinatingly, you know, as I'm, I've got one foot out the door from, from Tampa and coming down to, um, to, to South Florida, I applied for a job and um, months passed, you know, and then out of nowhere, I got an email. And so I, 
I, I started started teaching as an adjunct, and then um, ultimately I was lucky enough to be hired in 2014 at, at Palm Beach State for a, for a full time position. So now um, I teach in the the paralegal studies program and um, also business law. Business law is actually more what I what I started teaching to begin with, which for for those that kind of have never taken a class like that, you know, what is called business law is really just a, it's sort of a survey of law, you know, <laughs> you cover all different types of, you know, topics from, from criminal to, to, you know, civil and transactional and, you know, business, really, you know, law impacts all, all facets of business. And so I started doing that and then, and that's it. And I, um, I, I still practice. I'm, I'm really, really fortunate that I have my own law practice. And so, since I've um, since I've been again living here in um, in South Florida, I've worked uh, save a year when I was working as an assistant attorney general when I first moved down. That was the the job in Fort Lauderdale. Um, I've worked on my own, you know, building up a client base and and you know taking cases, and um, I've been able to balance that with teaching. And it a lot of ways is the best of both worlds. So I really I'm a lucky guy. This is. Uh... I, I think I've inherited Matt's, Matt Klaus's fear of asking, not, I guess, non-fear of asking stupid questions. Uh, and it probably <laughs> is my ignorance speaking here, but for whatever reason, and I'm, I'm going to ask you that you diagnose me here, why okay. would it be appropriate or not appropriate? Why do you think I think that law is one of those things where you don't, th I don't think that the people that are learning, say, paralegal studies or business law or law school, that they would be taught by people that aren't lawyers. That it, For me, it, it seemed very strange that a lawyer was also teaching. For me, it doesn't seem strange for a mathematician to teach math, but is, is there right. something in, the, you know, in, in popular culture that gives the impression that lawyers should be, you know, trial lawyers almost exclusively because that's what you know is the most glamorized version of law uh or, or the most televised because it's easy to make it dramatic yeah uh but that where is the disconnect in my head that i i think of <laughs> wait why the hell would uh a lawyer be teaching this class i would teaching. think you know yeah. a phd in law or some sort of academic would do that but not necessarily a practicing attorney or practicing lawyer. Um, those are, wow. Those, I mean, there's a handful of questions rolled in there. And I feel, see, again, this is, this is why when we first started, I was asking about limits. You know, I, I don't mind throwing on my you know, psychologist hat and <laughs> <laughs> I'll swap out my Detroit hat for a psychologist hat. Um, you know, here's what, I think it is. And, and this, this goes back to when we are trained as, as lawyers, when you go to law school and obviously not being a, you know, a PhD, you know, only being a, a JD, a Juris, you know, doctor versus, you know, a doctor of philosophy. Um, we are taught that there's a certain, you know, way in which I used to hate this when I would hear it. Cause I was like, what does that mean? But lawyers think, you know, and, and I think that that's a, a very simple, you know, kind of, of it's a way of, of, of 
labeling what was uh, it's just critical thinking right mm-hmm. and it's, it's problem solving and, and approaching approaching conflict a certain way because really that's what most lawyering is 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 working to avoid conflict or like you talked about litigation working to to resolve that conflict you know you you take a side and then you 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 know try to advance that side's interest to resolve the dispute but i guess going back to your question probably why you feel that separation or maybe why it, it surprises you to think about a practitioner you know who again somebody who all of our professors you know the adjuncts and full timers all of them are licensed and and working lawyers you know that's sort of uh that's not a requirement, of course, and I don't mm-hmm. think there's anything prohibiting um, even a, a a working paralegal from from becoming a, a paralegal professor. I think other other schools do that as well. But but here at Palm Beach State, this is established long before I came along, and I I agree with the approach. We want those that are out there doing the work, you know, that are daily seeing the way that the um, the profession changes, the kind of challenges that the students face, because um, again, I think that so much of it, you know, we call it practice, you know, that there's this idea that you're, you're out there, you know, hopefully you're having success, but a lot of that comes through failure <laughs> and what, what I think we aim to do. And I think, you know, part of why, and I think it's something that's across the profession, it's ingrained in us, not everyone, but a lot really early on that part of your duty as, as a, as a lawyer is to give back. And, and one of the easiest and best ways is, you know, through, through mentoring, you know, through, t- through taking on those sort of public service roles. And I think the teaching and the, I guess the academic side of the practice is something that a lot of us are drawn to and we feel an obligation to do. Um, so I don't know that there's really a, a disconnect in your head, but I, I think that really just in specifically talking about paralegals, you know, we want them to be able to Again, we don't want them to think like lawyers, you know, that's, that's reserved for us, but we want, I'm kidding right now, but we want them to have that, that critical thinking mindset and, and that ability. I tell students all the time that your job is to, you know, you, you read a fact pattern or you interview a, a potential client or a witness in a case and you, you, you collect this information and you need to be able to spot issues and know where to go to find the rule right, that would address that issue. You've got to understand the way the law is set up. You've got to know, and again, this idea of investigating and then researching the, the rules of the game, right? Researching, you know, any procedural issues that may exist or, or again, is this something where we need to look at it, you know, further? Is there further investigation? And so you want them to be thinking like that and be very, very focused on the substantive and procedural aspects of the law. And I tell them that if they're really, really good at that, then you take what you find and turn it over to the lawyer who is ideally, they're trained to now be able to look at the whole package that you've put together and see if there's ways that you can think around the law. See if there's approaches where, you know, you, you anticipate what your, if it's a litigation matter, what's what's the, your opponent going to do? How is your opponent going to look at this and, and take, take away from whatever it is that the law is saying to benefit them. You know, so you, again, it's, it's this, this sort of combination where there's the, it's symbiotic, right? And in a lot of ways, some lawyers would disagree, but, but as, as an educator, I think with the paralegals, when, when they, they are doing things and they're firing on all cylinders and the lawyers are as well, you know, we're almost on the same level. You know, certainly there's this, 
this supervisory aspect to it, you know, kind of like, a, I guess, uh, I've never been to nursing school and I'm not a physician, but I would imagine as a, as a physician, right, and a nurse or a PA, and then, you know, you're, again, working, working in tandem, but really those are, those are the things where I believe, you know, all of that contributes to a lawyer, um, I guess, wanting to get back in the classroom and having that, at least from an academic standpoint, that desire to have a practitioner teaching, you know, to have that practitioner who understands that, because this is the crazy thing, you know, you, you see it on paper, right? You, you, you see what the words say there, you know, you understand what the opinion is stating, but, you know, later on, you might end up in a situation where you're having to make an argument in front of the judge, and the judge is seeing that in, in a totally different way, you know, and you can guarantee that if you're litigating something, your opponent's going to see it in a different way, because sure. if they concede, then, you know, you win. You know, and that's it happens sometimes. That's what's supposed to happen when it's a real you know, clear cut you know, type of uh, decision. But it doesn't always. And that's why we have trials. That's why there's you know, that's why there are adversarial justice system exists. OK, so uh, thank you for addressing that. I, I feel yeah. much did, better. Did I, I don't know if I answered your question. I, I feel like I had no, this you did. It, I it, like, you know, again, I, I don't know enough or anything at all about a law class. I felt the same way about uh, when I spoke with Heidi about hospitality. Uh, I know nothing about it. So of course my head, you know, my, my preconceived notions born of watching TV and movies and talking with, uh, you know, lawyers in a very limited capacity is going to inform whatever opinions I make. And oftentimes they're completely unfounded and, and baseless and frequently wrong. So who, who better to ask than, you know, a practicing lawyer who's also teaching? Sure. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that makes total sense. It just out of curiosity, when you say, you know, you might have some, some preconceived notions or ideas from, from, you know, entertainment or media, what do you watch just out of curiosity? What kind of. Um, in terms of law, I've watched, well, uh, what was the movie with John Cusack and Gene Hackman, I think. Runaway Jury, I think. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Grissom, Grissom movie. Yes. John Grissom. Uh, I've read a bit of Grissom in the past. I watch Suits, uh, the, the <laughs> legal drama. But again, I know <laughs> that that is super duper duper hyper stylized. And it, it right. cannot, real life cannot possibly sustain that level of, uh, I guess, excitement on a weekly basis. <laughs> Maybe it can. I don't know. But these people, well, you know, they're cortisol levels have to be through the roof if they're fighting yes. for their lives every single week every single every hour every yeah. minute of every hour every week right um and everything yeah, turns is, into a trial uh it, you uh, know so coming from that i'm thinking that well that's what lawyers do that lawyers go into court they argue their cases they you know, one side wins, one side loses, or maybe there's a settlement sometimes, a certain percentage, but I don't know what percentage. And the the people that are doing the teaching are probably, you know, I, I don't know that there's a master's in law. Maybe there is. I don't know. Is there a master's yeah. in law? Yeah, there actually is. And that's, again, I think that goes back to, you know, and, and for those that are the purists that are listening right now, if I do misspeak, 
please. Like I tell the students, you know, fact check me. But I think that to answer your question, yes, there is a master's in law. And that is something that if you look worldwide at the practice of law, I think that's something you see more often um, in foreign jurisdictions, the, the LLM, right? But we all offer it here in the United States, and it's actually a step above your, your Juris Doctor degree, right? So if you, if you hold a JD in the U.S. and you want to pursue that master's in law, you can go to school, usually it's for another year or so, and get that LLM in a, in a specialized field. Um, for instance, at the University of Florida, they offered an LLM in taxation that was at least, you know, years ago when I was there, that was renowned, you know, everyone knew that if you, you know, had an LLM in tax, you were, you were trained well. And, you know, if it came from the University of Florida, you know, that was, that's kind of like the gold seal or gold standard rather. Um, But I guess, you know, years ago, the, the practice was not based so much on any kind of the practice of law, you know, being a lawyer wasn't based on any kind of study or, or, or academic um, accomplishment necessarily. It was one of these things where you sort of worked as an apprentice, you know, you were, you were under the, the, the supervision, the tutelage of a, of a lawyer, and after a number of years, you developed that proficiency, and then you were able to, to go out on your own, you know, hang your shingle, and you were, you were able to practice. And I, I think that going back, you know, a long time in, in our nation's history, that was the way law was. And out of Either it was other, you know, other systems that were viewed, you know, across the pond or, or elsewhere. There became more of a desire to create something that is sort of the equivalent of a PhD, and that's that's where I think the Juris Doctor came from. And I mean, even if you look at the, you know, justices on the U.S. Supreme Court, and this is where the history buffs are really going to call me out. I think I believe that that um, Justice Jackson, Robert Jackson, he was the last Supreme Court justice to have um, to have served and, and he was under the old system where I don't either he maybe had a law degree but I don't think he, he actually took a bar exam or there were these these I guess intellectual benchmarks that are, that are common in other fields that even he as a Supreme Court justice you know 60 70 years ago you know he presided over the, the Nuremberg trials and there were a lot of or he might have represented party. I'm messing up my history now. But the point is, a lot of the stuff that, that I think that, that the practice of law um, has now, it, it, it sort of parallels the other more, more, you know, deeply rooted academic, you know, mathematics, for instance, you know, chemistry, those type of things. It, we've sort of adopted that or the, the professions adopted that recently. And they're facing right now, the, the ABA, I mean, right now there's kind of a reckoning coming because a lot of um, states, you know, who regulate the licensure of lawyers are looking at thousands of, of, of new um, potential attorneys, you know, soon to be prospective attorneys, I should say, who graduated in the midst of a pandemic. And, and they're trying to figure out ways to take the bar exams, you know, do we do them virtually? Do we force everyone, you know, when you take a bar exam, like, again, and I don't know there's anything equivalent for or a PhD, for instance, but, you know, you go into this big room, you know, like it's at a convention center with, you know, 2,500 other people and you take this test, you know, it's eight hours on one day, then you go home, go to sleep, you know, hopefully you don't drink, you wake up the next day and you take it, you know, another eight hours. And, and right now there's some that are questioning the, the, the purpose to all of that. 
you know, why do we, why do we have this? And then some of the historians are looking at it saying it's really a vestige of, of old practices that were designed to exclude certain groups from the club. You know, again, it's the, the, the inherent bias and in a lot of standardized testing. And so I, I know I've kind of taken you on a little bit of a, of a path, but, um, well, that's an again. interesting point. I, I had a colleague or I have a colleague who, uh, shared the the controversial viewpoint and I didn't agree with it initially. And then I went to sleep and then the next day I woke up and I said, well, I feel yucky saying that I see the point, but some part of me has started to agree with it as well, where he mentioned or stated that in order to get a master's degree, you ought to pass the GRE subject test for whatever it is that you're getting a master's in. So in, in STEM fields, that's very common in order to get into a PhD program, uh, or even a, a very well-regarded, you know, something like UF or Chicago or Yale or Princeton, even to get into their master's program, you have to take the subject GRE test. So the regular GRE exam is math and, and verbal or quantitative reasoning and verbal arguments where you know you don't necessarily have to know any math beyond say the algebra level right so to show or to prove the fact that you learned enough math in undergraduate uh, or in your undergraduate program that there is no capstone exam that you have to take have to take you can and some institutions right. can require it but in order to get say for instance a master's degree Students tend to write a thesis, but then there are non-thesis options as well, where you can get an internship and say, oh, I satisfied the, the thesis option by getting an internship and, and going and working someplace for six months. And his point was that this is leading to a lot of people getting master's degrees where they don't know the fundamental or the foundational content. I argued, well, you know, for the longest time, there were no medical school licensing exams, or there were no law school licensing exams, or you didn't have the bar exam. And people right. practice law by, you know, choosing a good, you know, master and, and becoming an apprentice, or, you know, whether you're right. a blacksmith, it, it, their relationship through the medieval period has been the same, where you you want to learn something, you become a trainee with someone who knows what they're talking about, and then... You know, the, the process is more formalized now, for instance, in medical school or, or uh, law school, for instance, you might go and be a, you might go to a hospital or maybe you go to a judge's clinic. I don't know what it's called or what the equivalent yeah, is. Yeah, like a, cl a clerkship. Yeah, clerkship, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. That's what the word yeah, I was clerk. looking for, where you would learn, quote unquote, on the job. Mm -hmm. um, but to play the devil's advocate, how would one ensure that all the people that are graduating from law school, in fact, know the laws that are applicable in their states? And yeah. well, and then the second question is, or to play the devil's devil's advocate, is that necessary? <laughs> what does that, uh, yeah. what, what is that proving that if, you know, does that just mean that you've memorized a bunch of facts and... I think it means, well, you, you know, and for what it's worth, um, I don't know why you would feel icky <laughs> because I tend to agree with, with everything that you're saying right now. And 
and I have some very strong opinions about this and it's, it's interesting that, um, I'm so glad we've kind of gone down this route. Taking it back to like what, what we are charged with as, as you know, professors in the field of paralegal studies, there's no paralegal bar exam. Right. There's there's no kind of, again, unlike nursing, unlike, you know, other areas. And I'm talking more where you after two years and you graduate with your you know, AS degree or, or even again, four years, um, you don't have to take any sort of there's not that final intellectual hurdle in the form of a standardized test that ostensibly reflects your competency. OK, um, Really, there's not even any minimum requirements under that you're some under than under other than rather, excuse me, other than working under the supervision of a lawyer and and performing certain tasks, right, that relate to you're, you're not providing legal services, you're not representing anyone, you know, you have to be bound by the, the ethical standards, right, that separate lawyers from paralegals. But that's really it, you know, the, the way in which the profession is set up is that there's an enormous amount of trust that's put into, you know, not only the individual paralegal, but the lawyer who is agreeing to have that person work under their supervision. And so, you know, I and I look back to my experience and a lot of people that I've you know, known that were in law school, you know, who've had great success and and those that uh, those that maybe have have had different levels of success and the, the bar exam and, and the test that you take even to get into law school. You know, like you're talking about this, we really got it thinking, talking about that GR, you know, taking that specialized type of GRE so you can get into a master's program. You know, that's not a predictor of how well you're going to do once you get out into the real world. I don't believe, you know, and I've never done a study, but just speaking from experience, I think those are more, you know, they're, they're, they're constructs that are created that, that everyone, I think now, because it's been set in stone, we reflexively fall back on it and say, well, we got to do it. You know, and that's, I don't know. I don't know how effective it really is. I don't know that because somebody passes the bar exam the very first time on their very first try, or it takes them a few, you know, like, again, our former um, former governor and attorney general, and I think he's a congressman now, you know, Charlie Crist, that became a campaign issue, you know, 15 years ago. And it was just, it was pure politics that this guy had to take this exam a few times. And it certainly didn't reflect his success as, as a leader, you know, it, it had nothing to do with that or his ability to, to be a lawyer. He was the, you know, the attorney general for the state and then went on to be governor. Um, so I, I think that um, those sort of things, you know, that they have, they have a role, but I don't know how, how important or necessary it is because again, we, we train people every day, you know, and, and a lot of it is very focused on ethics, you know, and a lot of it is very focused on this idea that, that, you know, you are handling matters that are so important to your clients, right? The people that you have, you know, again, you might not represent them directly, but you're representing them by proxy through your, your you know, supervision of the lawyer. That's their life, you know, whether it's a family law, you know, divorce or, or a child custody matter, or you know you have somebody who is quite literally looking at you know a life prison sentence because they've been accused of a crime, and, and we encourage you know the students you know almost drill it into them you know you have to take this seriously you know this is not the kind of 
job where you punch a clock and you know it, it's way way more important than that and a lot of what ensures that the whole system works is having that faith in in people and and believing that because they've taken an oath like lawyers take you know because they've agreed to to you know uphold the law and to defend their clients interests and confidentiality and everything else that that everything is going to work the way it should and you know i don't think that because somebody you know passes a test it necessarily means that they're going to be more or less likely to effectively you know uphold that oath so um again i i know that i <laughs> keep running but no, no, no. Um, running is good it, it allows me time to think and, and come up with the next question the the ickiness comes from uh or at least in in my head it came from uh knowing the systemic biases that exist within standardized yeah. testing and access and equity of outcome and equity of access and or equity of opportunity of i think uh, yeah. So in that sense, you know, if someone were to take the GRE and get a certain score on it, or, or maybe they, they don't get a certain score on it, a benchmark score, or, you know, if you get, uh, I'm making this number up a 580, uh, then that means that with a prerequisite knowledge, you know this much, you know, 580 points out of points whatever worth of- points worth <laughs> of information. Now, if you have 580, I can uh, take you under my tutelage and as a graduate advisor, I can work with you and say, I can get you from a 580 to an 800. And then at an 800, you're able to be a contributing member to the mathematical society or the mathematical community at large and blah, 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 blah. Right. That being said, there have been plenty of students that did not make the 580 and ended up being better mathematicians and, and contributed <laughs> even more. Yep. The the ickiness comes in in not knowing what percentage of students that get the 580 move on to be successful and what percentage of students that don't make that mark, again, 580 is just some random number, that don't right. make that mark move on to be successful. So if there's a correlation between anyone who makes a 580 or higher has a greater likelihood that doesn't mean that they're guaranteed to succeed, but they have a greater likelihood of success in the future. Okay, fine, then take the test. In my head, then that makes sense to, to have students take the test in order to say, before we give you this sheet of paper that says we are certifying that you have a master's, uh, right. you know, go, go take the test and prove to us that you learned 580 points worth of stuff. Points worth. <laughs> It seems so arbitrary. It, it, it is. I mean, I, I, and I'm the flip side of that is that there might be students who have not had the same privileged life and, and they therefore they will not be. be able to get to 580 or they might not be able to make the grade that, that whatever is arbitrarily set as a yeah. benchmark. Um, so really? again, I, I, I keep, I'm sitting on the fence and I have been for the past few years and in fact, even uh, there was an individual's email, I won't share names, uh, that said that they don't like to give cumulative exams and they just give weekly quizzes. And, right. uh, you know, so students don't cram the night before. And I had to read that email and I think, I, I thought to myself, okay, so I do give cumulative exams. What is my defense for doing that? Um <laughs> 
And yeah. So I, I, I thought that, well, maybe I am able to write questions that you can't cram for. Maybe right. I'm able to ask questions that, uh, you know, you, you cannot just study all night and then be able to produce a certain result or regurgitate facts or details. You have to be able to assimilate stuff and, and uh, synthesize new information or make inferences based on stuff I've given to you. Yep. And then that makes me think, well, am I training students to do that in class? So I, I run away from the question, but I think I can defend my use of cumulative exams, not to say that this person even asked me to, uh, but again, I, I read stuff and I immediately start thinking, well, do I do this? And what reason do I have for doing it? Same. Always. <laughs> but, but again, I'm, I'm curious to hear because I give them as well, mm -hmm. but I do, I do wrestle with it. And, and I've, you know, I've, I've tried to temper it in a lot of ways particularly with the, the, the again, the, the students who are specifically studying to become paralegals, you know, not so much the, the business students who mm -hmm. are, again, the objectives are, are different for the programs and, and the outcomes are different. Um, but, but what is your, I guess, again, how do you, how do you justify it? What's the final, you know? Um, I, 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 some part of me uh, goes with the, argument from history that it's always been done. There have always been cumulative exams in mathematics. So I continue to do that because that's the way I was taught. Yeah. yeah. I had to do it. I, I had to <laughs> it do it. So to me. It, it's not that the <laughs> I, I joke with my students that, you know, the cycle of abuse must continue. And I say that tongue firmly <laughs> stuck in cheek. Uh, I, I don't wish for the cycle of abuse to continue. I, I think that uh, my version of utopia in a classroom would be that I wouldn't be teaching 10 classes every semester or 11 classes every semester or being, or being forced by circumstances to teach that many. And in fact, it was Sungji that asked me yesterday that question. You know, if you weren't doing that, what would you be doing? How would your right. practice change if you were only teaching one or two classes every semester? And then the rest oh. of the time was, and I, I was like, oh, that's a wet dream. <laughs> <laughs> That but, you don't want to end, right? You know? That's a that's a beautiful, beautiful thought. But I, I thought that I would give daily or, or three times a week homework. I would grade it. And then I would have, say, a midterm, a, a, you know, a, a cumulative assignment for a midterm and then a cumulative as assessment for a final exam to, to balance out, well, I value regularity and consistency. But then I also have a responsibility to my discipline and to the student, in fact, to make sure that whatever ought to be covered in that class that's needed for future reference yeah. is maintained, even though there's plenty of studies that say long-term recall of, of things that we discuss isn't there. Um, <laughs> but it's see, like, well, how do I remember all the calculus I learned? And I stress, I struggle with that. Why, why is it that yeah. I remember calculus and linear algebra and abstract algebra or, or, you know, random classes that I took throughout undergrad and grad school? And why is it that I remember that as opposed to um, American history course I took, which I, I couldn't tell you that the first thing I, I read or learned in that. And is right. it just that I had 1812. A, <laughs> right. it, it might've been 1813. I wouldn't know the difference. And it's not that I don't care. 
But maybe that's exactly what it is. Maybe no, that, I, I, say, I, I don't care about the War of 1812, and that's why it doesn't stick with me. That's it. No, it's because, I mean, I, again, I can, I'm going to take off my, my hat and put on my totally unlicensed psychologist hat <laughs> and say, well, it's because that's what turns you on. You know, you, you like math. I mean, th- there was something there that, and because of that, it sticks, you know, because of that, it's, it, it's over the years. And I'm sure that if you're, you know, and when I say turns you on, there, there was some sort of interest or attraction there that, that kept you coming back. And because of the repetition, you know, it becomes, you know, we become the things we do. Sure. And that's, you know, and I, whatever, I, I don't want to jump in, but, but, you know, Sungji's question, you know, Dr. Schmidt's question is so, um, what, what would you do if you didn't have to do it in this way that's been set up? I would make everything, everything as experiential as possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would be given them, we, we would turn that classroom into our law office. And I have, Right now, there's one class where, where Dr. Casey Ryder and I, we've really, you know, we've built on something that existed for a long time, but we, we adopt that. And the students, a lot of them hate it, you know, because it's not this sit down, look at PowerPoints, you know, you're, you're learning that way. It's not that kind of learning. It's now you're litigating. We have, look, boom, here's some paperwork that you've been served with. You're accused of doing the following right here are your witnesses right you've got it and and they have to litigate a case and it lasts really hard for about four months for us it's in the spring but they start back in the fall with preparing for this idea that you know class is going to be totally unlike anything you've ever done before and by the end of it um even those that, that hate that process hate that experience they'll come back and say especially after they've been working they'll say wow you know that prepared me because you're forced all of a sudden to now not just you know understand you know how to research the law and look something up but now you're dealing with people you know now you have this whole aspect of of law that I, i don't know if you see as much in mathematics but you know the law is made by fallible people and it's it's litigated by by fallible and, and oftentimes deeply flawed people and and you work through this whole thing where now you are you know in a lot of ways you're becoming much more of a counselor to your to your client you know all of a sudden now you're functioning not in this world of absolutes you know two plus two again <laughs> to use the weak example it never equals five you know not even you know in orwell's world you know two plus two we know it equals four right um but when you're, when you're, I guess when you're experiencing and you're working through a, a legal conflict, you now all of a sudden have a client saying that and they're insisting it, you know, and you can't just say, no, this, you, know, you, you have to convince them that two plus two does equal four. And you have to, to guide them and work through, okay, look, if we keep going this way, this is what could happen. You know, I can't, I can't tell you for certain that's what will happen. But if we lose and we lose big, this is where we could go. It could be hundreds of thousands of dollars that you're now liable for paying, right? Or, or on the other side, if it's a criminal matter or, you know, whatever it is, you could lose your child. They could terminate your parental rights. And so um, I think that if, if I had my druthers, I would love to make so much of this, this experience that students are having right now in college, you know, make it not about, you know, regurgitating information or memorizing a lot of facts or, you know, I, I think that we, um, at least as practitioners of the law, you know, you need to have those skills, but I, I would like to think that they've been developed earlier on. And now we can work on taking that, you know, and, 
and again, using it to, to solve bigger problems, thinking strategically and thinking critically and, you know, but there's a lot working against us from ever, ever having that sort of, that sort of environment. You're you preempting know? my next question. Um, after Sungji asked me that question, I, I went to sleep last night thinking, okay, so, you know, I, I spent all day thinking about what I would do if, you know, the world were my oyster. And then the second question or part B to that question is, well, what would take for me, what would it take for me to get to that stage or what would it take in, in terms of resources, whether it's time, is it money, is it buying from administrators, what specifically to, to you know, pen something down and, and write something in a Word document, what specifically would it take? for you to take what you do in that one class and do it in all your classes? Mm -hmm. That's, that's a great question. Hey, I have a visitor real quick. Can, oh, can we, hello. Can we, uh, Jake, come here, come here, come say hi real fast. This is my, this is my. Guess, 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 guess so many movies. Guess, guess how many movies that are on Disney Plus. How many movies are on Disney Plus? I have no idea. I want you to say hi to someone. Say hi to my friend Anya Ron. Can you say hello? Hello. <laughs> How are you? This tell him your name. Zach. This Zach, is this I is love Zach. your hair, Zach. <laughs> I, I wish exactly. I had your hair. I, I'm very <laughs> envious of you. I'm very jealous. Say thank you. Oh, he, thank you, you. oh yeah, you probably he probably can't hear you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah, because I got the headphones on. But yeah, he just complimented you on your hair. He said he wishes he had your hair. Right? Um what are you, what are you looking at? And this I is, wish you had, I had Disney dad. Plus as well. I, I don't know how many movies there are on Disney Plus, but I wish I, I, I knew that. It seems no, like important it, information. It is. How many movies are on Disney Plus? Toy Story. Oh, there's Toy Story on Disney Plus. A lot of them. A lot of them. Oh, do, are, there, are there all, are there four, are there four Toy Story? I, I don't so, know. I think there's so, four. So there's Toy Story 3, there's Toy Story 4, there's a lot of them. There are a lot of them. Well, go go watch some movies. Daddy's finishing up in here. Thank you for coming I, in. Say I'm hi. You're watching Onward. That's a good one. Oh, you finished it. Okay. Well, pick another one. You can do it. You can watch two. This is the COVID style parenting. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Disney <it> Plus. <laughs> it came along, right? <laughs> oh my goodness, but. Yeah, he's he's my younger boy. I think I mentioned the older one earlier. I might have, but that's Zach. He he just turned four in April, and you know, just to totally change the subject, we'll we'll go back. Um, but talking about uh, this this experience that we're having right now, you know, and the way that our whole world has been shifted upside down with the pandemic, I, I was having i guess it was a discussion or maybe it was just a soliloquy like i've been doing today with with my class and i believe and this is going to probably this is my hot take and i'll probably have a lot of people that disagree that this arrangement that we have right now where everything's remote are you teaching summer courses right yeah. now are you yeah and, and you know doing what we did you know at the drop of a hat last you know spring it's created this whole new it slowed everything down, mm -hmm. you know, for me at least. And it's created this kind of forced consciousness that I don't think I ever would have had before, you know, the pandemic struck. And, and again, it's, 
I think it's a blessing. A lot of times it frustrates me, but I look at my ability to spend time with my kids, you know, and, and the ability, yes, it's, it's stressful to try to juggle, you know, teaching a course and having a, a hearing, you know, I, I have hearings and I definitely don't allow what just happened during the court <laughs> hearing. I'm like, get out, you know, it is so funny when you talk to other lawyers that, especially those that have little ones, you know, they'll be like, oh my gosh, I just, you know, the, the diaper just got pulled off and it's stuck to the wall now. <laughs> and I'm, I'm trying to convince the judge to grant my client a bond, you know, but we, um, we, we have this, you know, this whole new crazy kind of arrangement that I believe to be finite, you know, we're going to get back to something. It won't be exactly the same as it was before, but we will get back. And I think that at some point, um, and this is part of, you know, time heals all wounds, you know, and you kind of forget about how stressful things were. But I think we'll look back and say, dang, I really missed and I'm thankful that I got to have all that time with my kids that I wasn't getting before. You know, we eat dinner together every night now. You know, we, we, we can't go. We can't go out. We can't. And, and before those were times when I would be, you know, I have, I have the class that, you know, would end it, it you know, 9 15 or whenever the, the night class is in and i have to trek all the way down from from gardens you know to get to wellington and i would get in and they would be asleep and i would be missing out on all these really you know valuable times that are never going to come back and it's you know whatever that's just something that i've i guess i've learned to value over the past few months and i'm i'm sure that you know when we all do get back to normal i'm going to miss it so much you know and i'm, I'm thankful that in a weird sort of way, I've gotten to, to experience it. You know, we're living history right now. And <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more, but I am saddened uh, to know that there's no path forward, at least that I'm aware of, to continue this. That I, I understand that things go back to quote unquote normal, whatever that looks like in, in whatever period of time that happens. But I, I am saddened by. Um, uh, I, I guess I asked the question uh, of President Parker when she was doing the campus-wide meetings a couple of weeks ago, and mm -hmm. there wasn't really, I, I asked, is there a path forward for continuing to work remotely? I, I'm, I have more time to take care of myself and spend time with my family. I am a better employee as a result of it. I am a better teacher as a result of it. So, you know, if you value those things, not to say that you don't, but if, if the bottom line is, how do we give the best possible experience to our students while also increasing many-fold uh, the productivity of our employees, it, it seems... Uh, I want to keep it clean. I don't want to put the explicit no, tag in. Bro, I don't know. It, it seems asinine. So self-defeating? It, it is. It, it is like, <laughs> oh, where's my foot so I can shoot it? Um, but, oh, man. See, now we're, we're 45, 51 minutes in. Now we're going to get real, <laughs> real. Um, I, I agree. And, and But see, this is where... And I, you know, I really, at the heart of it all, you know, optimism, pragmatism, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I believe that we, as, as a, you know, a state college, community college, we are uniquely blessed in, you know, the reality that we have an infrastructure in place to continue delivering things remotely, you know, as needed. Mm -hmm. and, and what I believe will happen is with enough, and it's going to take the students, and I, 
can't predict the future. I can't speculate what's going on in their minds, but make no mistake about it. Most of them, I believe, would like to get into the classroom, but they're not dying to do it because just like you and just like me, think about the reduction in stress, you know, of knowing you don't have to get on I-95 or the turnpike and battle, you know, and, and then get, once you get to the school, battle the parking situation. And, you know, all of these things that have just, just disappeared for the most part, at least as it relates to their relationship to the school, you know, that's gone. They, I think, if they continue to be given the opportunity on a limited, you know, basis, whether it's hybridized or whatever, I think they'll continue to embrace it. And I think you will see, again, if the students are are responding positively, and like you said, we're having success and there's, you know, there's there's an impact that is driving us in the right direction and we're all feeling better, you know, comfortable, we have to keep going in that direction. You know, I, I think we have to, but... What it will really take, though, is, is it takes empathy. It's like anything, you know, it takes that understanding that, that um, I don't know, even, even with the difficulty of, of getting it up and running, we've learned so much. I mean, this crash course in, in figuring out Zoom, you know, and figuring out collaborate and, and figuring out how to change your lessons. And, you know, I still struggle. I'm very Socratic. Mm -hmm. in the class like I love you know just and I really love it when we can you know we, we spar you know we parry and joust and when the students do it with each other that's oh man that's what I really like and um we don't get that as much now but I'm figuring out ways to make it happen you know I, I use the in in class polls you know and, and you know sort of you know ways like that that you can use this to our advantage and I I don't know I I, I agree I keep saying I don't know but I do know I know we're going to miss it. And I think that, again, there, there will be some sadness if we're forced to just totally abandon all that we've learned as a result of this, this unplanned type of experience. You know, I think that we certainly, there we go. Haven't we blown apart the myth that for some inexplicable reason, and I say inexplicable with air quotes, it's very, it can explain the hell out of it, that we have to be in our offices to do work. Mm -hmm. Haven't we blown that myth apart? I mean, hasn't it completely been, you know? I, so, I wonder you know. how much of it comes from, again, you take a standardized test because it was, because I took a standardized test. So you have That's to it. come in and sit in your office because I had to come in and sit in my office until I got to a place where I didn't have to. Uh, or I, I couldn't. I, that's or I, 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 I was not allowed to anymore, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, well, here's a question for the, for the mathematician. And this is something that I've always, again, because I, this is, you, you know, you began our, our discussion by talking about your lack of, you know, I don't know if you said, please forgive my ignorance, but that's what I say a lot. I'm an idiot. Okay. But I look at so much of the way that we, as, as a people, or maybe it's just an American thing, or I don't know, maybe it's just education because I see it in my elementary school age sons, you know, this idea of assessment and everything is data driven and we have analytics and there's all of this which again is, is valuable I, I don't want to discount the value of it but what i've observed is we're taking all of this information and and we're using it first and foremost kind of built on a template for a business model we're using it in this in this way that you know you, you hear terms like productivity you start looking at you know what what is our product that we're churning out you know what is our deliverable i heard that at, at a meeting a few months back you know at a college what's our deliver what are you what are you talking about <laughs> like we are we are professors right we profess there are students 
who are here voluntarily, who are who are learning, who are, you know, ever ask a student when, why they pay tuition. I don't know if you've ever done that as an exercise and get some of the answers that come from them. You know, well, I'm buying knowledge. It's like, you are? You know, well, I'm buying a degree. You really? You know, and so, you know, again, I think that there's just this massive confusion that has that has infiltrated, you know, and maybe it's all industries, you know, but really in, I think in education where we're, we're taking all of this, again, I don't know if it's mathematical in nature, statistical in nature, but, you know, reporting on success rates because someone's decided that you're a success, like you said, if you score a 580 or above, <laughs> like, well, what does that mean? I mean, what are we, what is our end goal? You know, I, I think... Is, that was a whole lot I just threw out there. I'm nuts. So you know, I, I had an answer uh, very early on. I, I kind of predicted where the question was going. Um, yeah. I, I think it's a perversion of statistics. And I think it's a, a lack of understanding of what statistical analyses of data actually gives us. For instance, I, I don't think that people fundamentally understand, not to say that I do, but maybe I, I know to be aware of when people start equating cor correlation with causation. Yep. So there's this funny story. I, I wonder if it was Broward County or Palm Beach County. One of the school principals saw this data that, you know, 86% of the students that got a five on the AP calculus exam in high school ended up doing significantly better in college. Right. Well, really? So, so you, you get the so, highest so, score so. possible on an AP exam in high school in a college level course. And you think that that core, whatever, fine. Someone got right. paid millions of dollars to observe that collection of data and say, yeah, there's a correlation here. <laughs> that principal or superintendent, I, I really don't want to misquote the story, but it, it happened, said, Everyone has to take AP calculus. Yes. So it, it, and it's our our goal should be that everyone has to make a five as well, right? <laughs> I mean, that, yeah. Well, duh. And why why are, wouldn't you want to do that if you're taking the class? <laughs> might as well get a five on it. But yes. I, I think that that fundamental misunderstanding and corruption of the idea of correlation not being the same as causation. Has, result, has resulted in people looking at deliverables and looking at academia as, well, ha, how do we grade someone? And if there's you know financial compensation or well compensation involved, then, well, if my supervisor were to say he's an excellent employee, what does that mean? Well, that's hard to quantify for, I guess, an HR type person. So how, how do you justify giving a raise to someone who's very excellent versus someone who's excellent? You know, you might not have been feeling very flowery that particular day. So maybe you didn't use the biggest word and you just said, oh, yeah, this guy does, does a great job. That doesn't right. mean that that person is below a 580. Again, to go back to that arbitrary number. Right. Very good on that day might mean I got a 600. Uh, excellent on another day might mean I got a 590. But yep. I found yep. that the countries that do better year after year on that PISA test, I think it's a test of mathematics. Uh, I'm not a, familiar with that. I, I think it's PISA, P-I-S-A. I'm not 
pretty sure it's Pisa. Uh, South Korea, North Korea, the Scandinavian countries, China, India, they tend to blow out the United States uh, mm-hmm. on this test. I don't think that they're necessarily better at math. I think that their relationship with math is better, and I think that the way they educate their students is better in that it's not assessment-driven. Teachers are not gauged based on how many of their students pass this certain assessment at every single stage of you know academia, whether it be elementary school right. or middle school or high school. Yeah. And... Um. No, I was going to say, I, I'm getting paged. Can I pause for one? Please do one do second? whatever you yeah. need to. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, I could probably keep going, but I didn't want to get up and walk away. But yeah, hold on for one sec. My little one's calling me. No worries. I'll tell you what it, I'll tell you what it was when I come right back. Hold <laughs> on for one sec. No worries. Oh, here we go. Oh, sorry about that. Okay. Now let me see if I'm, I'm back. We just had a, a potty break. No worries. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, so I get these announcements. They just fly in every now and again saying, I pooped, right? And then it, it, it will continue on. So, but yeah, it was, it was the same guy that was here before. It wasn't another guest in the house. Telling no worries. It was, it was Zach. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, going back to, like you said, the, the use of, of assessments and, and other, you know, countries, I don't want to interrupt you, but yeah, it's talking about how they, they approach it differently than it seems like we've gotten almost fixated on it, you know, here it's this, you know, it's the end all be all. It's how we fund schools. You know, it's how we, how we look at the efficacy of a professor, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. Right. And I'm going to say something now that I don't know why it doesn't get crowed from the rooftops more often, but um, you know, when, when you are asked to, to evaluate yourself, you know, and engage in this self-appraisal, you know, and part of what they want you to look at are, you know, students, (laughs) you look at the student evaluations, you look at student performance relative to everything else. And it always seemed to me, right, if if we're, again, if we're being really, really frank about you wanting to make sure you're looked at in the best light possible, doesn't it benefit you just to give your students the highest scores that you possibly can, notwithstanding their actual objective performance, because it reflects better on you. And that way you can say, look at me, look how well I've done as a professor because every single one of my students gets promoted. Every single one of them, you know, <laughs> come on, come on. You know? I, I have very, very, very strong opinions on that self-appraisal process. Uh, I, I find it to be an immense waste of time. Uh, I, I think a, it would be significantly better if I were to be able to sit down with a mentor on campus or a mentor outside of campus. It doesn't even have to be someone, you know, at Palm Beach State College. It might be my graduate advisor at FAU who I speak with regularly or professors I had in undergrad who I I wrote to three of them. And I said, when I got a full-time position and I asked them, how do I become like you? And I find that those emails have taught me significantly more and given me much better direction than looking at, at, at you know, pages and pages of student evaluations and, and trying to cream them into something that, you know, looks delectable uh, so that I, I am shown in the best possible light when, in fact, I, I gain significantly more from, from honest conversations from people that I respect. Yep. But that, that again, there's no way to quantify that. How do you 
grade someone on a conversation that they say they had with a third party that's not a member of the college. Like they sure. can't reach but, out to Dr. Shah Muhammad at RIT and say, hey, so you had Anurag in undergrad in his freshman year. He was taking your graduate level combinatorics course. And, <laughs> you know, that, that was the worst decision I've ever made in my life, but also probably the best. Yes. Uh, and, and, and as a result, I, I, you know, got to build a great relationship with a fantastic professor who didn't look at my age or my preparedness and then say, oh, you're just a freshman. Get out of my graduate class. You know, this is for, oh. this is for us fancy people. Um, and then there were other professors that did do that where they said, you're, you're a sophomore. Why would you take this class? Why, why do you, why would you think that it's okay to take this class? Oh, really? Wow. Oh yeah. I, I've had, <laughs> anyhow, I, I'm, I'm getting no, off no, track you there. Tell. No, I love it. Like that's, but, but those are the experiences though, that again, I think, you know, they're, they're not unique necessarily uh, certainly not necessarily to you or to me, but they're not necessarily unique to college, but, but that's, I think on a much bigger scale, you know, what, what we want our, our students, our graduates to experience, you know, I want there to be, again, this, this, this idea that we learn from those types of challenges, you know, those types of failures, those types of, is it slap in the face? You know, is it a, you know, is it, you got into that graduate class or, I mean, again, I'll, be honest you know i uh, i remember so much more about you know crossroads and decisions that i made in in undergrad especially you know because i was i was favoring a certain i don't know just involvement let's say in clubs you know i was big time involved in student government and I, was, I was a student senator and and i can you know recall the, the night of my you know first you know, it was the, the election was over and we were having a, it was a, basically it was the election party. They were announcing the results and I had a, a comparative psychology test the next morning, you know, <laughs> and, and I remember making that conscious decision that, you know, 20 years old or whatever, do I stay out, you know, and keep partying, you know, like and, and find out if I've won or lost and, and go on, have a good time or do I go home and study and make sure I do well tomorrow. Right. Well, you know, that's a big boy decision that you've got to make and and whatever decision you do make you live with the consequences and and you know i stayed out and i went in and i did not do very well in that exam the next day and and i don't again i couldn't tell you about the questions that were asked the content of the exam but i know that in looking back at that at the end of the term that that exam affected me right it was no one's fault but my own it was a decision that i made and i again I don't know, like that, that was a decision that was made in the safety of that bubble of college, you know, where there's a direct consequence, you end up making a C in the course instead of probably would have been an A because you were doing well till you failed that exam. But you also did that, you know, the, the benefit was that you got to go have this experience of, of you know, celebrating this election win and everything else. And, and again, I, I don't know if this is tying back to what you were saying, but if we've been invited to, to teach, if we've been given this, this very, I mean, it's special and it's something that a lot of people want to do, you know, and, and when the college, you know, whether it's Palm Beach State or UF or whomever extends you that invitation, you know, there, there's this trust, you know, there's almost this sort of, it's almost a fiduciary relationship where they're mm -hmm. like, they're saying, you know, we, we are allowing you in, you know, you are now a representative of us, you know, you have the, the privilege of getting to that classroom. And if you're getting in, 
and you're doing your best and you're, you're you know, practicing being a professor, let's say, and, and you're, you're learning, whether you're learning it from a mentor or from, you know, again, going to the, um, what do they have you guys doing? Um, your, your cohort, you're part of the IDP. cohort that does the, there we go. But there's the pillars though. Is that part of it? And the, uh, the, you have the, to tie them in somehow. Right, right. Well, again, so whether you, wherever you get it from, you know, there's this trust that you, you know, have been brought in because they believe in you, you know, and, and I think that part of what should reinforce that trust is you continuing to not screw up really, really, really badly. And, and that kind of, it sounds so sad, but that should be the, the baseline instead of setting, you know, again, what I believe to be um, these arbitrary, you know, lo- looking at the figures, reflecting on the data, you know, trying, like you said, to craft it into something that looks nice. And it's so funny hearing that from a mathematician, you know, because you deal with numbers and, and, and data and everything all the time. And like, I, I don't know, because I get really confounded by it because we're trained, and this is the lawyer, you know, experience, that once you've been through school, and then once you, you clear that final intellectual hurdle, you know, you take an ethics exam, it's separate and apart from, from the bar. But once you've got both, and you're done, right? And you take your oath, from that moment on, you are trusted, right, with, with your clients, and this is the easiest one to conceptualize because it ties back to business, but you're, you're trusted with their money, right? You can set up that very first day a trust account, right? An iota, interest on trust account, where this sounds ridiculous to think about, but here you are fresh out of school with no true experience as a lawyer, because again, just the day before you took your oath, and you could potentially have a client comes in that gives you millions of dollars to handle a matter, and you put it in that trust account, you hold that in trust, the expectation is that you can do that, right? The expectation is that because you've raised your right hand, and because you've promised and, and that's something where it's like, I feel like th- there should be more of that. And does that mean all lawyers do it? You know, no. Does that happen the very first day? No, but that's the expectation. You could defend someone, right? It couldn't be a death penalty case, but it could be a murder case where they're looking at mandatory life in prison. You can take that on. The expectation is that you, even if you're lacking in the experience, are going to make sure that you get up to where you need to be to effectively represent this person and get the job done. Even though you might not have ever handled a million dollars in your trust account before, you do that because if you, again, if you steal that money, it's back on you and you are going to be in trouble if you mismanagement, if you mismanage it, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, you know, but there is that, that inherent trust that I feel like, you know, my experience has been that that just doesn't exist. You know, we're constantly having to prove ourselves. We're constantly having to, you know, we'll look at this. Just this student said that you didn't, you know, your, your, your lectures were disorganized. <laughs> it's like, how does the student know that my lectures are disorganized? Has, has a student a lecture so, before? <laughs> well, that, that would require a higher level of metacognition or being aware or, or being self-aware. I, I don't understand how someone who's not a lawyer would be able to walk into your classroom and be able to judge the material content of your lecture. You know, the the art form or the performance aspect of it, sure. I can say, oh yeah, I I really like the way you really got into someone else's face and you challenge them until they, they blah, 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 whatever. Right. That's the performance aspect of it. But how is it that someone 
administrator or student would come in. And this has never happened to me, at least from the administrator side. Students will find reasons to complain about anything. But how is it that if, if you cannot solve a quadratic equation, your judgment of my inability, alleged inability to teach quadratic equations or the quadratic formula is something that I have to defend myself against. It, it, yes. It's uh, in order to get the job, for instance, at FAU, uh, if you're applying for a teaching position there in mathematics, they make you take a test. And oh, my wow. advisor there said, I refuse to take the test. I said, I have a PhD. What? I, I passed my qualifying exams. I, I got a dissertation. I'm not taking another test just to make you happy. If you don't want to give me the job, that's okay. And uh, well, they gave him the job, thankfully. And he, he turned out to be a fantastic mentor to thousands, hundreds of graduate students right. because he instilled in us, hey, uh, if, if there's something that's, he used to use the word tyrannical, he came from a dictatorship. So his mindset sure. was always people will, are out to get to you and you know, they, they will make you do things that you shouldn't do or you don't want to do or blah, blah, blah. So stand up for yourself. Do, don't do the things that you don't feel comfortable doing or don't want to. Um, again, I, I feel like I learned more speaking with him informally after class or Friday nights after we're done grading exams. I felt I learned more over pizza than perhaps just looking at, at evaluations that perhaps are very stilted one way or the other. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree. And I mean, again, I, and, and that again, it, 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 it just goes back to the question, you know, that there has to be a, a different and better way of, of doing, you know, what we're doing if we are truly looking to be the best that we can from that, that perspective of, of, of appraisal, evaluation, you know, whatever else it is. And, and I, you know, and again, I feel like, like I said, I feel like it comes from this mindset that, that I think history will show. And I think, you know, looking at where we are right now, it's showing that just because someone has demonstrated, you know, a certain level of business acumen, or just because somebody's been able to use analytics to make a lot of money, that doesn't mean that that needs to be transplanted into, you know, academia or the classroom, you know, as a means of gauging success and, and certainly effectiveness, because again, I, it's so, so funny when you talk about like the, again, the professors, you know, I mentioned experiences in college, but I think about the professors that, it, that impacted me the most, you know, they were the ones that really, some might say they're freewheeling, you know, some might say that, you know, and, and did, did we have a syllabus? I think, but I'm certain that no one at any point in time reinforced any belief that the syllabus was somehow a contract with that professor like ah you know that, that kind of stuff blows my mind that's that's business talk and as a lawyer you know every time I hear a student say it I'm like I don't know who taught you that but you're going to learn what a contract is in this class you know especially business law you're going to learn and the syllabus does not a contract make okay <laughs> it is no more a contract than the speed limit sign is mm -hmm. you know this is and so you know but but again going back to you know learning from mentors and learning from from those that have have taught for a long time especially at this level you know it's it's a different world than, than high school i've never taught down there so maybe it's needed there i don't know i don't know i, I don't know enough but for us i think that you know 
if there was more of an encouragement of being, I don't know, self-sufficient and, and again, are you getting good results in a sense that it's not students who are, like you said, the level of, you would determine to use metacognition or awareness. Like, yeah, you have like, to be aware of what you know and what you don't know in order to be able to make that judgment call. Like well, I have it, it, to think not just about the material, but about how I think about the material in order to know how I will teach it. So yeah. I, I have and, to have, I have to be on a higher plane of understanding uh, Bloom's taxonomy or whatever you want to, want to sure. whatever triangle you want to use, you, you cannot just know the facts and be an effective teacher. You, you have to know how to get those facts across and how to get someone else to synthesize them or, or use them in a coherent manner to generate their own thoughts. Or at right. least that's presumably the goal of teaching, of getting students to think critically and uh, look at data points and draw inferences and extrapolate from that and make cogent and coherent arguments. Uh, not just two plus two is four because someone told me that. Not because I I can I can do that and say oh there's two That's fingers and there's another two. One two there's two four. Yeah. But it, I I I it's a silly exercise I do in calculus too to to tell students that if you can if you're solid on the fundamentals if you understand something deeply way better than knowing five chapters worth of information that you cannot explain yes. to someone else. So typically the, the first question is, well, what's two plus two and how would you prove it? Everyone says four. Well, it's obvious. Two plus two is four. Prove it. Prove it. Show me what oh. it would take to, to do that. And needless to say that that's an incredibly different, difficult proof. It, it took Bertrand Russell some 400 pages to prove that one plus one was two. Oh my uh, to, to go down to anyhow, now I'm going off track, way off track. No, 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 but it, but it's good though. But I and, and you watch. I would imagine when you're when you're having that, you call it a silly exercise, but obviously it's not. And you watch them spin, you mm -hmm. know, and you see that. <laughs> wait a second, hold on. You know, that's again. I think that is that is the true college experience. You know, like that's, you know, and, and again, helping them through that. And, and I love the luxury of saying in, in law, sometimes the best answers are, it depends, you know, mm -hmm. the students, by the end of the class, they mock me, or maybe not even by the end, but, you know, that's the best lawyer answer, because you start, you know, you hedge your bets, you know, yes, there's some absolutes, but, but when they present fact patterns, when, or when I give hypotheticals, you know, it depends, okay, well, what does it depend on? You know, what pieces of, of evidence, again, we discussed the difference between evidence and proof, you know, and, and media and television entertainment, they conflate the two all the time, you know, and it makes it very difficult to untangle those concepts. And, you know, I, again, I embrace and I really, part of what I love about this job is that ability to, to demystify something that, you know, maybe a few weeks before or months before the students were like, there's no way I can ever learn these things. It's like, no, you can. And you can also learn that, that, that your learning of this is an evolution, you know, and you will find just as I do that, you know, I've been practicing for 15 years. I am still learning stuff, you know, and usually it's a product of me. You know, I'll admit it. I, I screw up sometimes, you know, and when I do, it's that failure that it's like, oh, I didn't like that. I'm going to do everything I can to prevent that from happening. I'm going to remember, you know, this experience so that I get it right, you know, and I don't, you know, I don't know the best way to put that into the classroom, you know, unless again, you can make it totally experiential. And that goes way back to your question before about what would it take, you know, to get us to that point. And 
I think it's a shift in, in, in education's relationship with, with at least our school's relationship with Tallahassee. I think it's a shift in, in the leadership that, that begins setting the policies and setting the rules and, and you know, really valuing us as being something that is completely unique. You know, students aren't the college's customers, you know, <laughs> like, you know, getting away from that sort of mindset. And I think that for the most part, we're, we're starting to get away from it. But that was the cool thing, you know, six years ago, like hearing that and everybody was kind of accepting it. It was like, what? No, we're the professors, they're students. You know, I'm not a customer service rep and they're my customer. You know, I may sure. be a lawyer, but they're not my client, mm-hmm. right? Like it's, it's a totally different relationship. And, you know. But that, you know, and it, money, it takes money, it takes a new vision and it takes, you know, now could we do it? We could, but it's going to make it really tough and we have to go back and answer <laughs> in ourselves. Why was it done in this way in the first place or? Yeah. All right. Yeah. To, to switch gears to things that are not your job. Um, sure. I would imagine that it would take some sort of tolerance uh, of pain and uh, people yelling at you and, and people being unkind to uh, take on the task of being the chief negotiator uh, of the union. Cause I, I'm, I, yeah. I think I, it's a voluntary position. I don't think you get reimbursed right. for your time. Uh, no. So completely voluntary. What part of you, you know, makes you wake up one morning and say uh, outside of, Altruism outside of uh, you know your moral compass pointing due north or close as close to due north as, as humanly possible. Is that the right direction? I, just, I hope so. Okay. <laughs> my my compass is broken, so I, I, I toss a coin for I was any saying, is decision. Is it supposed to be pointing north? Yeah, mine's pointing north. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but it, it, regardless of what you do, uh, there's always going to be one party that's not happy. So either, you know, whether it's administration, I can't imagine that relationship not being adversarial. And I'm not saying that it is, but again, in my uninformed opinion uh, from watching movies and TV shows and, 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 and thinking about these things, you know, you're, you're asking or you're arguing for things that are unappealing to give up for someone in that same room. So if they are forced or their hand gets forced into giving it up, then they don't like you. And you know, they have unkind things that at least they're thinking about you. And if you're unable to get those things, then obviously the people on your side of the table are saying, well, Carrie sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'm, maybe I'm oversimplifying this, but no, uh, no. Th- there has to be a certain part of, of your brain that you either just turn off and say, I don't care. Is that what allows you to keep doing it? Or, you know, I know altruism and and knowing that that's the right thing to do are easy answers to that question. Is there a third facet that says, I'm going to volunteer so much of my time and dedicate so much of, of my energy to this, even though I don't necessarily get something specific in return? Sure. Uh, well, is there something you get in return? Um. Wow. That is a really good question. Yeah, I, I certainly get something out of it um, internally. And, and I, I think that whatever is driving that um, is something that came, it was, it was 
either planted into me or was born into me a long time ago. And I think it's the same thing that that feeds my desire to be a lawyer and specifically a criminal defense lawyer, you know, which is it's the majority of what I practice and um, you know, defending uh, kids, you know, like juvenile delinquency defense is another big part of what I do. Um, but, I, you know, you said something a few minutes ago talking about the professor who was, was from another country and refused to take the, uh, the, the exam at mm -hmm. FAU and, you know, and discuss this idea of, you know, you, tyranny. And I, I don't want to say that that's what's going on, but I've always believed that there, there's something very important and very noble about standing up and, and um, exercising rights and, and defending a position that might not be popular, you know, and um, I look at the chief negotiator position and again, you know, I was lucky enough to be invited when I first started, you know, in part because Barbara Sheffer, I don't know if you know Dr. Sheffer, but she was the former um, chair for decades of the paralegal studies program. And when I was hired, I, I got to kind of, she passed the torch to me and she was the chief negotiator for a few years. And so um, she said, you should really look into doing this. And of course I got to know the folks that were on the, um, the bargaining team, you know, Tracy Ciucci and, um, and Mark Jones and and all of the you know, uh, Steve Stemley and all the people that that you know at the time were in the process of negotiation and I started learning and I realized that being a part of something like that you know I felt that I could make a difference because of that mindset and I, I really think that there's something this is going to sound so strange <laughs> but I'll say it there's something sexy about negotiating and bringing people that that just by nature of their you know just respective roles you know you're on the opposite sides of the coin on a lot of things and, and kind of having the um the opportunity and i think it's really beautiful to be able to get into a room and start working towards that that commonality and and again a lot of times this is stuff that you know this is where media and and um, entertainment, you know, they, they, they do us a disservice as consumers of that. It's a long game. You know, it's, it's a marathon in a lot of these circumstances. It takes a long time to get people where they, they do get to yes. And, you know, we learn in law school and, you know, you learn, especially if you take mediation courses or I studied my, my seminar in law school was on collective bargaining. So I've always had a, an interest in that. And, you know, understanding that a real successful negotiation is one where both parties walk away and they're a little bit pissed, or maybe they're a lot pissed because they didn't get everything they want, you know, and that means there was something that was given up and that means there was that, that give and take. But, you know, I don't know if I'm, if I'm a damaged person, you know, that seeks out a role like this. I don't know if there's- That was going to be um, the follow-up question. Uh, <laughs> no. Where is it, do you think that that, uh, that, that um, what's the word? Was you finding the negotiation aspect to, to use the phrase sexy, mm -hmm. something that predates law school, or do you think that came about as a, as a manner of your training that you received, or do you think that that was just there and that's what made law school palatable or interesting, or that's what, you know, that was the hook that was needed. That it was, it, the, the latter, you know, it was definitely something that was there beforehand. And I saw law school as the, the opportunity to, to really learn how to kind of feed off of that emotion. And I have to 
confess that a lot of the raw feelings, the motivations, I mean, I've always believed in, in standing up for the little guy, you know, and, and I'm not saying at all that our bargaining unit, you know, we're, we're definitely not the little guy, sure. but, but, you know, truth be told, if we didn't have that, right. And if all of the decisions are allowed to unilaterally be made by a group of people whose interests are adverse to yours, and you don't have that ability to negotiate, you don't have that ability to legally require them to, to, to come into the room and, and work through these different conditions, you know, wages, you know, hours and conditions of employment, you know, well, without that, we would be, we would be in the position of your professor from FAU. We would be subjected constantly to, you know, whatever the decisions were, you know, that were unilaterally, you know, foisted upon us or thrust, you know, and before us. So um, I think, again, you know, the, the negotiating team and, and, and the, the idea of a collective bargaining unit, it is such a powerful thing that is it, it, it's falling away and it's fallen away over decades you know if you look at unionization you know both in the, the public sector but definitely in the private sector you know political sentiments you know i think the ways in which a, a lot of people in, in our nation have been kind of programmed to vote against candidates who will make decisions that are that they undermine your own best interest especially if you're a worker you know, and, and so I look at, you know, the fact that we have, we have a union, we have this, this bargaining unit, I look at that as a blessing. And I just think that it's, it's an opportunity to, to be able to play such an active role. And, and, and I have to say that, you know, yeah, there are complaints, you know, there, there are people that obviously are unhappy, you know, I had a, um, a professor mentioned something after one of our sessions a couple of years ago, who directly was impacted by the final terms in a way that was, it was negative. And, and I felt bad. He described it as a gut punch, you know, like when you guys agreed to that, you know, and I'm, you know, again, he was, this is the, you know, if there is a downside to collective bargaining, because we're all subject to that same contract and the terms of that contract, this was something that was detrimental to him. And, you know, I guess being able to then turn around and say, there's, there was never any intention to, to punch you sure. or those similarly situated to you in the gut. It was, it was what's best for the, you know, for, for the entire group. And, and again, I, I really, I appreciate and I embrace everyone coming at me with the criticisms because I believe, and this is definitely where the legal training has come in. You know, none of this is personal, you know, even when, you know, negotiations as you know, it broke down, almost a year ago, and, and, and we, we reached this impasse, you know, it's not because of any kind of you know, feelings or animus that, that the administration has towards us, or I have towards them, you know, or, or, or we have towards them. There, that might be there, but that's not what, what causes it. And, and again, you know, the, the ability to separate, I think, is something that we as lawyers, and there are three lawyers on the negotiating team, you know, <laughs> we're trained to do. And, and, you know, I think that that puts us in a better position to be able to negotiate because we know that when when certain things happen, you know, it's not because of a of a dislike, you know, and, and when when the judge rules against you early on, you know, when you first start practicing or when the other side wins at a hearing, you know, yeah, you might feel bad. And certainly if it impacts your client, you know, but the sooner that you can realize as long as you've done everything in your power and you haven't deceived anyone, you haven't violated any ethical rules, and you've, you've dotted every I and crossed every T, it's got nothing to do with you after that. You know, it's not about you, you know? And so that's, that was the best advice I was ever given, ever. And it wasn't until after I got into school, but talk about learning, you know, a mentor gave me that advice before a very important sentencing hearing, and it just 
it blew my mind. I'd love to tell the story, but the, the idea is, you know, that that job, um, it's something that, that I, I enjoy doing because I really, and it's not just altruism, but I, I believe that it is, it's so important. I believe that you can, you can make an enormous difference, you know, and you can really change the direction of our institution through the, through the process of collective bargaining, you know, and that's an understatement. I mean, you can, you can do a lot. So the, the next question is, is semi-related and it also transitions into questions that the last interview we suggested for you. Well, not knowing that it was you, but uh, oh, okay. is there, <laughs> is there something that young Carrie high goes through and then develops that feeling of, I don't want to call it, the, the little man syndrome, but maybe that's what it is that, ah. you know, w was there something that precipitated that or was it uh parental influence that, but well, I don't want to put thoughts in your head. Was, was there something no, that no. precipitated finding that sexy? Wow. Um, probably nothing, you know, one single event necessarily. And, and it definitely wasn't, um, and this is going to sound really funny. It definitely wasn't parental influence. My, my dad's a veterinarian and, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I believe a lot of my growing up was, was him, you know, he had to deal with lawyers, you know, through different, you know, uh, conflicts and things that he faced in his life. And there was always sort of, a. a I don't think he liked them. <laughs> I know he didn't like them. It was always sort of a, of a dislike of, of the legal profession, I think in general, you know, that, and, and maybe that drew me to it. I don't think so. I think it was more, and little man syndrome. Um, wow. I've, I'm a little man. <laughs> I'm of, of small stature. I've, I think because of that, you know, certainly early on in life, you get discounted a lot, you mm -hmm. know, especially as it relates to, to, you know, feats of strength and, and fortitude and, you know, you know, athletics and stuff. And I always, yeah, that was a motivator to be able to to show people, at least early on, to show people that I'm a lot stronger than I look, or I'm a lot faster than you think I am, or I'm a lot, you know, but I've I've always I I like being a leader and, and taking on leadership positions, not so much from that Napoleonic you know, I'm going to, you know, <laughs> I have to conquer and everything else. I, I don't think, but more, I don't know, just to be able, I think to, to, I sound so arrogant. Um, you kind of take all of the, the potential within a group or the potential within a person, even, you know, and, and transform that into a reality. And I think again, with the, with the, the bargaining team, you know, and certainly as the chief negotiator, we function much more as a team than, you know, I might have the title and I might be the one who does most of the talking, but it is extremely, and you, I, I believe you can ask anyone on the team about this. It, it's, sure. it's extremely, um, I don't know, is egalitarian the right word? I mean, it, there's input from everyone and, and oftentimes the direction that I want to go, I'm willing to concede that if other people are telling me, hey, this, you know, and then we have a lot of those kinds of conversations. So it's certainly not that I'm the, you know, I'm the CEO and they're all my, you know, underlings. But um, gosh, that was such a good question, Dr. Katya. Like, I, I think that, um, you know, here's what I, I guess, here's what I like. And this is, again, this is what's always been with me, I think, is 
I believe all of us, you know, we are, you know, as people, and this isn't, you know, particularly brilliant, but, you know, we are capable of the worst possible acts that you can imagine, you know, evil, brutal, whatever, you know, kind of trite title you want to, you know, apply to it. You know, you're, you're mentioning when I asked what this was rated, you know, murder in broad daylight, right? Yeah, we can all do that. All of us, it, it, it's documented throughout the existence of man. And we also have the ability to be extremely altruistic and selfless and heroic and everything else. And, and I believe that part of what law allows and part of what um, the, the, I, even the, the negotiating team is the ability, if, if you are leading that group or if you are a voice for a group or for an individual, you can amplify all of those really, really, really good things, all the things that are way over here. And I, I think I like, I like that, that privilege. I, I like that ability to stand up. And, and, if, and if you're good at it, you know, and you're able to, to have the other side look, look and, and really look objectively and see, well, wait a second, maybe there is something here, you know, maybe the faculty does deserve a raise, you know, maybe, you know, but, but to bring about that change, I mean, there's nothing, you know, again, and that's, I think that's a very noble job, especially when you're doing it in a situation where a lot of people are like, I wouldn't touch that with a 10 foot pole, mm -hmm. you know, or it's easy to write off you know, a client. And again, I don't view, you know, I don't view my the privilege of being chief negotiator as, as representing all of the, the bargaining unit as clients, but I definitely take it seriously. And I, and I definitely look to say, particularly when we hear, and there are things that have been put in writing, you know, the, the injustice that exists right now, or inequity, I should say, that exists right now, you know, regarding compensation and things like that, to be able to say, look, there are people that are really struggling and, and to present that and, and, I learned this from Tracy Ciucci. Well, Professor Ciucci was a, is a master at that kind of messaging and negotiating using those kinds of facts. And so um, I know that I probably didn't answer your question, or maybe I did, but what, you know, where does it come from? It's something that's always been there. And you know, maybe it, you know, it comes out of, I don't know. It come, I had a law professor and when I told him in, in, in my last semester of law school before I went, I was really lucky my last semester to go study abroad in the Netherlands. And I, I took a trip you know, overseas to the University of Leiden, just, just outside of Amsterdam, like 30, 35 minutes by train. Um, but I went and saw this professor. He's, I just found out since deceased, but um, Fletcher Baldwin and Professor Baldwin taught criminal procedure. And so when I had decided that I was going to work for the public defender's office, I'll never forget in the, you know, the, the, it was kind of a dimly lit, you know, kind of dark, you know, a lot of dark wood, you know, in the office. And uh, he looked me right in the eyes. I'm sitting across the desk from him. And he said, oh, he said, you like losing? <laughs> and not particularly, you know, I don't. He said, well, you need to get used to it if that's where you're going to go. And, and his advice was, you know, because I, I think that he had, I don't know if it was one of his children or maybe it was another student, but the way he delivered it, it made me believe it was a child mm -hmm. um, of his. You know, he said that, you know, you want to go to the other side, you know, work for the prosecutors because that's where you, you know, you win. And, and, and he wasn't boiling it down to that, you know, it wasn't that simple of a message, but it was, you know, be prepared to, to lose, you know, be prepared to be in a lot of ways disrespected, you know, PDs even though they are some of the most important and some of the most talented you know, lawyers that exist in all of, certainly the criminal justice system, they get it from every angle, every single day, 
you know, the clients don't respect them because they didn't get to pick them. You're not a real lawyer. You're a public pretender. The state, you know, oh my gosh, you know, all you're doing is making my life difficult, you know, mm -hmm. and then the judges, you know, a lot of times, you know, whether it's just perceived or it's reality, you know, you're not supposed to be treated differently, but I think that just because of caseloads and everything else, there's a certain, there's a stigma attached to it. And so I know that when I took that role on, whatever that was that fed, you know, fed me to go that direction. And did it frustrate me? Yeah. Did I leave work and cry sometimes? Yeah. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. Do you know, do you sometimes end up you know, maybe drinking too much? You know, but yeah, that, that happens. And you have to learn to, to temper that. You have to, you know, and I, I I don't to, know. Does to, that answer your question? It, it does. <laughs> and it, it now it leads to another one. And, and this, you could choose to answer this or, or swerve it. Uh, moving one degree of separation further, you said, okay, I'll ask part A of the question. How long had you known your wife before you married her or before she married you? I, 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 I always uh. forget what the appropriate <laughs> way to... to in my case, my significant other will be choosing against all good advice to marry me someday, I hope. Uh, oh, man. Well, I, there's again, there's another term in the law. You know, we call it the benefit of the bargain, right? Uh -huh. And when you, when you go through, you know, again, I don't know if it's a legal term. The law has adopted it. But I certainly got the benefit of the bargain. And I am my, I am my wife's husband, if that makes uh -huh. sense. But we, um, we met in 2000s late 2006 early 2007 and interestingly enough we both worked together at the public defender's office um and we were married in 2010 october of 2010 so we're coming Four up years. on 10 years okay. so um but but that um again i don't know if that was the the, the question it, it yeah, colors we, well something is she an attorney as well she is and Oh, dang it. Interestingly enough, she's, she actually, we, we met at the public defender's office, but as I mentioned earlier, when I, when I kind of ran through my, my route to, to Palm Beach State and to South Florida, when she, when we decided to get married and, and she decided to, to move down here, she decided to, to switch sides. And so since 2010, she's actually been a prosecutor. Okay. And so, so we are, you know, obviously we never, you can't, you know, we, we don't have cases where we, we, litigate against each other but she works for the office that um prosecutes my clients you know <laughs> so it's um and it has been we, we've had that kind of relationship for you know pretty much the past nine nine years or so you know since i i reestablished my practice after i left the um the attorney general's office um but yeah so that, i don't know if that answers your question but, yeah it, it she's does. a lawyer it, it, and she's a much better lawyer than me like <laughs> way better you know <laughs> Uh, well, it, it, it kind of maybe sort of answers the next one or the real question I was going to ask, but, uh, presumably if, if she's known you for four years before you guys got married, she was aware of you finding standing up for the little guy noble. So oh, yeah. my, my question was going to be given that this is purely a voluntary position, does she appreciate your taking time away from well, young master Zachary. And I, I forget what the seven year olds, or I don't know if you shared uh, it. Uh, Anderson, Anderson. Anderson. I, I don't know yeah, if, Mr. Yeah. if Mr. Zach and Andy, uh, not getting to spend as much time with dad because dad is busy doing these other things is seen within the same light as, Oh, Oh yeah. 
so what what's that relationship like? Is it contentious or does it ever get contentious or is it he's fighting the good fight so he needs to do the things he needs to do? Well, or maybe there's a the third was, option there. I, I don't know. I actually I really think it is kind of a third option. And I will say, you know, hands down that that before I agreed, you know, to to take on this responsibility. Because I'll be honest, I wasn't begging to do it, you mm -hmm. know, but at the same time, you know, you start sensing things and you start you know, saying, okay, well, maybe it's time to, you know, just switch it up. And we sure. really did, um, there was a major, if you look back a year, there was a major shift both with the administration and on our side, as far as, you know, both chief negotiators, you know, they both changed. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, we had a long discussion about it. And, and I have to, you know, this is part of why I got the benefit of the bargain because, you know, not only is she a much better lawyer, but she's a lot smarter than me. And she, you know, reminded me, she said, this can't be something that you know, can't, you know, take over, you know, and, and, and again, and it hasn't, you know, in so many ways. And this is, I think, also more a function of the way our, our team is set up. You know, we really work together, you know, even from things as, as simple and administrative as as proofreading, you know, different statements and, and and handling, you know, delegating, handling calls with Tallahassee and, you know, all sorts of stuff. Like we, you know, um, we all work together. But just so you know, kind of where her head's at, like yesterday when we had our, our you know, virtual union meeting and everyone's there and then there was a lot of discussion, you know, and I even talked to individual faculty members afterwards, you know, so there was about a period from whenever we started 10 30 11 whenever it was so almost like three o'clock and then i'm going back and looking at stuff and trying to find information where she came in you know my wife thankfully was she was off yesterday and uh, at least working from home she's like are you doing union stuff you know and so you know she realizes and again is that time that i could have spent you know billing i guess you know could could i have been working on other things that maybe would have directly benefited all of the family more yeah but she understands and um and i think she knows that it, it feeds i was told by a therapist a long time ago i don't know if you do this feels like therapy i don't know if you if you do the therapy thing i recommend it to everyone but a long time ago you know you have to find something that feeds your soul you know mm -hmm. and then for whatever reason it feeds my soul and i don't believe you know a lot of things that you do, especially when you're younger, they feed your soul for superficial reasons. You know, it's the ego, it's the, and there, there really aren't, and Nick um, LaRocco, LaRocco would probably tell you the same thing, um, that it doesn't, union leadership doesn't really feed your soul in, a, in an ego sense. It feeds mm -hmm. your soul in a sense that, you know, this is something that a lot of people, I think, they wouldn't touch the 10-foot pole, but they, you know, they understand and I think they value your willingness to, to do whatever it is you're doing. And I just hope, you know, in a lot of ways, I hope I'm doing it right. You know, I do the best I can all the time. And I am always, 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 you know, willing to, to take suggestions. And, you know, and I set up, this is something that didn't exist before. And I think that the faculty has been a little bit, you know, they're, they're not as, they haven't embraced the way I thought they would, but email me directly to this, this bargaining team email address, you know, and some do take advantage of it. And I, but all of it's confidential and it's something where, you know, when it has been utilized, there's always a phone call from me that comes back and we look for ways to, to address whatever the concerns are. Um, but I think right now we just, you know, we just got to get back <laughs> and, and, and get this pay crisis squared away. I don't want to say too much, but, 
you sure. know, if if the uh, if the governor's realizing that we got to pay K through twelve, and if a brand new kindergarten teacher in the Panhandle is making more than a, than a professor here in Palm Beach County, something needs to change, and it needs to change yesterday. You know, and that's and it's nothing new, but we are, I think, every day getting closer and closer to that change. What what was the last thing you did that made your significant other both angry but smile at you? <laughs> I, I I do these stupid things where <laughs> Julie, I see, I, I I can't stop looking at that beautiful picture you have behind you, and oh, it, it, right here, yeah. it, it it again the the type of relationship that you've described thus far of whatever you've shared. Uh, I, I can draw many, many parallels between, you know, uh, Julie, my significant others in California right now studying for the MCAT. But even when she were oh, here, wow. uh, you know, Friday early mornings or Saturday early mornings or afternoons or evenings w- would end up getting spent uh, on learning how to edit audio and, and talking with people. And I would tell everyone else that, you know, TV's got to be turned off. Uh, you, you can't do laundry at the same time because laundry is like 10 feet that way. And right. they would look at me like I was crazy. And I, I would say, you can't walk either because I, I can hear you walk. And if I can hear you, maybe the mic can as well. And I, I have become a madman uh, yeah. when it comes to this. So th- there's many, many things that I do on a daily basis where I am looked at with with a viewpoint of pity and ridicule and anger. Right. So I'm wondering if you are similarly challenged as I am. <laughs> yes, as far as the madman aspect. Um, yeah, like like you know, getting into things and I will I've gotten better and believe it or not it's gotten better with the pandemic. You know, I don't I don't go on these fits where I'll I'll work, you know, two, three, four in the morning, you know, and then wake up early and start doing it again. I've, I've gotten a lot better. Again, that forced consciousness, you know, and again, maybe it's because I don't have the other, the other distractions, but um, well, again, looking at my, my better half and, you know, she is, she's always willing. And this is what happens when you marry a lawyer, or I think anybody who is a, a professional critical thinker and more importantly, a professional arguer, Mm-hmm. You know, very quickly, you know, you, you are into, into a, a relationship where, you know, the other side, right, especially if it's something that, that could, could be contentious, right, or, or could have potential pitfalls down the road, uh, usually is, is going to be willing to point those out and remind you of those, hopefully beforehand, not afterwards, like you, like you often see in all relationships. But, um, you know, she puts up with a lot of the craziness, but at the same time, part of what I think makes her a very effective certainly prosecutors, she doesn't, she doesn't suffer fools gladly. Mm-hmm. And I think when we met, I know when we met, I was, I was a fool. And a, a lot of, a lot of that she has really helped me to, to tamp down. And, and a lot of it, you know, she's helped me to grow as a, as a man, you know, and having children and, and seeing the way that, you know, uh, a mother, you know, takes care of children and, and, you know, loves in a way that, I love my wife, but I didn't understand love 
until I've had kids. And mm-hmm. I'm so lucky. And, you know, and all of these things that you, that you hear from people all the time and you, you know, you don't really understand it until you understand it until you're there. And I'll let you like, oh, what I used to hear, I'm like, yeah, shut up. You know, I don't care about your kids, but, but, you know, I guess to go back to, um, yeah, I am, I met with a, with a healthy degree of skepticism on th- some things, but I'm also very fortunate that like, again, with this chief negotiator position or with, you know, I'll undertake some causes sometimes, you know, that will usually come out of my law practice and I'll continue to represent people pro bono, you know, and, and that sort of stuff where my wife knows that it's, I don't want to say it's become personal, but I've gotten obviously more personally invested in it because I want to see an end result or because I, I believe that's what's required. And, um, and I think she'll kind of, you know, she shakes her head and says, well, if you're going to do this, just remember, you know, that this is the way you got to look at it. Um, and so I'm very lucky in that respect, you know, and she definitely keeps me you know, grounded and, and calls out my bullshit. <laughs> Cause it's, it's there, you know? And um, yeah, did, well, yeah, I keep asking, did that answer your question? Does that, does that sort of kind of explain where, um, sure. where our in, relationship is? In a general is, sense. You know? Yeah, well, and again, and you asked, well, I think the specific question was that really I should yell to her because she just got home a little while ago. But I'm going to say it whenever this is hilarious. Um, well, yeah. actually, if you don't mind, <laughs> I would love to hear her answer to that question. Oh, and I oh, haven't I done say, this on an interview before, so I, I don't know if it's cool. see if I can bring her in? Yeah, I, sure. I can try. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's hey. going to be weird for a bearded Indian man to ask her the last time she was upset with her husband, but also smiled. No, no, I think it will, um, I think it will really, um, it'll make her all the more happy that a bearded Indian man does it. So okay. I, I would, second. I would love to play the part of the bearded Indian man then. <laughs> you got it. You got it. Hey, Jen. And maybe I, um, I think she's, I think I heard her come on. Hold on for one second. Sure. One, one second. <laughs> hey, sweetheart. <laughs> here you're gonna put on the headphones there you go here and this is this is uh professor cocktail or on your rag just this on is my rag, wife please. jen hi hi jen how are you good how are you fine thank you oh that must be this mr is, andy this is andy yeah and and um he's not gonna be able to obviously you can't hear him because you don't have a headphone in but yeah this is andy this is the big brother so I don't know if you want to ask the question, but I'm pretty sure, like I said, I know what the answer is. I, I apologize for the weirdness, but I asked Kerry, uh, well, the last question I asked him was, when was the last time or what did you do for your wife to both be angry at you, but also smile at what happened? <laughs> I was thinking about it. <laughs> I, I don't mean to put you on the spot so if you don't want to answer that's fine <laughs> but you're laughing so i'm guessing there's something in your mind he uh he put on his wetsuit <laughs> and was dancing around <laughs> <laughs> this was 
And again, the children saw this is the wetsuit it from. Was, it was <laughs> bizarre. Okay. <laughs> when was this wetsuit? This, this, this was a wetsuit. Probably from when he was like 15. Yeah, there we go. Can and we paint a better picture? Color, size, uh, dimension? I'll dimensions? look at the wetsuit if you want to see it. It was like, like green and <laughs> orange and uh, very faded. Okay. I don't know how much he actually used it as a young boy. I can't picture him as a surfer or. <laughs> Which is doing part, anything athletic, really. Which is oh, <laughs> which is part of what I oftentimes get ridiculed for, you know. But I had this wetsuit that had been hanging in my closet for a really. But know, for, this is this is like a theme in my family, though. Randomly, we'll be doing something normal, and then somebody will get dressed in costume and just do something <laughs> ridiculous. That sounds like a great time. That sounds absolutely fabulous. <laughs> That was what I was thinking, but maybe I'm wrong. That was just a couple nights ago. But, but yeah, you know, you have things like the wetsuit. Maybe the wetsuit represents, in this case, something much bigger than that. But, you know, <laughs> I dig the wetsuit out on a Thursday or Friday. Was it last? It was night before last. So that Thursday well, night. the reason that it was upsetting. Okay. <laughs> please, please, please let's, do let's, share. Let's get into that. Okay, it's please. Because I, I still go into work. Okay. And um, I don't know if he told you what I do, but I'm a prosecutor here in Palm Beach County. And so on Thursday, I went into work. I had a full day. I've been working this really tough case. And I came home. And I just did not feel well. And I came home like around six or seven. And I told him I was extremely tired. I said I had a bad headache that I was just going to go lay down. And so I'm laying down with the lights off. And all of a sudden, he comes in this scuba wetsuit and starts dancing on the bed and i was like what are you doing so yeah it was equal parts angry so there was a lot might i've been more laughing on another occasion probably on this occasion it was probably more irritation than than laughter there was plenty of laughter there was i was hearing laughter was there there was laughter right hey guys yeah there was laughter. Yeah. Laughter, laughter. <laughs> right? I, 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 I have never. Well, I, I don't know how to swim, so I don't have a wetsuit. Uh, what? Uh, yeah, sorry. I, I grew up in the mountains, and uh, yeah. Um, that that's fantastic. That. Sorry. I said we got to work on that. You've never. never I don't uh, know how to swim. Um, I, I also m- more recently, well, not recently, but in the past few years, we uh, took a trip down the Grand Canyon in a rafting party. And uh, at, at one of the places, I guess it's a smaller canyon that's completely blue water, like fluorescent blue water from all the sodium that, that's in the water or the copper that's in the water itself. And they said, oh, you're, you have a life jacket on. You, you can just go down. The, the water's not deep enough for you to drown. And they didn't tell me that I had to hold my breath. And if someone doesn't know how to swim, uh, you don't know that you should be holding your breath when you go underwater. So (laughs) I'm swallowing these, 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 these big gulps of water. And Julie was this champion swimmer and then a lifeguard and all these things. And she, she's trying to calm me down. But again, you're trying to calm down a guy that's thinking that he's drowning and probably is. Right. Uh, So then that removed any desire to actually learn how to swim when i was like well so people are are fighting drowning 
in order to, <laughs> to, to, to swim. Be able to do this. <laughs> it doesn't seem all that pleasant of an activity to me. If, if, you know, the alternative is that if I stop doing this, I will die. I, uh, I'd rather take up podcasting where if I stop doing it, that there's no chance of me drowning to death or, you know. <laughs> Wow. I, I had never put it in that, those terms before. I've had that thought about scuba diving before. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember thinking a few years back that I would maybe like to learn to scuba dive. And then the whole concept of being underwater and, and that vulnerable, you know, where if you lose your regulator or you're running the air, you're, you're done. You know, sure. it sort of uh, chilled my, my curiosity. I know you do. You want someone to play with you, but wow, that that's surprising. That living in Florida, where in the mountains were you? Did you? Uh, I was born and raised in India. It was a small mountain town in the Himalayan mountains called uh, Dehradun. Oh, wow. Very cool. When when did you move uh, stateside, or what was the eleventh grade? I, I we moved to Coral Springs, down in Broward County, in eleventh grade. Okay, so I was sixteen. And have you been? Have you? Have you been here since? I mean, yep. South Florida since. Wow, wow, fascinating. Now, do you ever get to go back to India? I haven't been back since two thousand four when we got our green cards, and then thankfully for citizenship, they didn't make us go back and then pick up the green card or pick up, I guess, a passport. But for a green card at that time, you had to go back to your citizenship of country of citizenship, pick up the green card from the consulate, the U.S. consulate there, and then fly back. This was in the middle of my senior year of high school. I was like, why can't we just go down to Miami and pick up the green cards? Right. Yeah, that's how is this going <laughs> it to makes be? too much sense. How is this going to be any different than, you know, you go pick it up there? Uh, but anyhow. Yeah, I don't know. If it has something to do with re-entry. Yeah, I don't know. That's, that's interesting. Well, um, since I have Jen here, I, I don't want to lose the opportunity. Yeah. Uh, ask away. <laughs> yeah, ask away. She loves being put on the spot like this. So I'm so glad that we got to do it. <laughs> I'll even step away for a second. No, no, no. <laughs> there we go. What's the, and these were questions that I was going to ask Carrie, but I'm going to modify them slightly to ask you. What's the best piece of advice he's ever given you? Um, hmm. I think that uh, if you know me and Carrie, you, Immediately, one thing that most people pick up is that Carrie is extremely outgoing mm -hmm. and I'm more of an introvert. And so I think, I don't know if it's just one piece of advice, but just throughout our relationship, just seeing the way that he interacts and how free of a spirit he is, I think that has helped me as a person not be so closed off or intimidated by the situation, which is like the first thing that I like resort to. Fair enough. What's the best piece of advice you've given him? And maybe I guess I should. Well, you tell me your answer and then I'll see if he agrees with it. So relax. <laughs> he may not agree with that. This but sounds... it is the best. It is the best piece of advice <laughs> I've given him is to just relax, like not take it so personal, whatever, whatever is happening in any situation, because he has a tendency to get all worked up and like, just, Passover. Now he'll probably say that that's probably the most irritating thing that I ever tell him. <laughs> well, that, then that's how you know that it's good advice. If it irritates the other person, <laughs> then know that there's some semblance of truth in there. 
but this this is sounding oddly uh, well familiar. I am more <laughs> like you, and my significant other is everyone's friend when she meets them. Uh, and and I think the advice is pretty much the same. I have benefited from having known her for the past few years, and it, it's brought me out of my shell. I certainly would not be talking with with a complete stranger, uh, you know, for as nearly as long as I have. Uh, ten years ago, I, I would have just looked at you and said, "Hey, Jen, it, it's nice to meet you." And I wouldn't have known what what else to say. Uh, and and usually, I have to tell her to calm down and maybe not the word relax, but don't be yourself in this person's class or today is not the day to be Julie. Today is the day to, (laughs) to be calm Julie or or Julie at half percentage or something like that. Mr. Carey, since you're back, what's the best piece of advice you've given to young Miss Jen? Oh, wow. The question was more broad, but let's make it specific. The best piece of advice I've given to you. Um, this feels like the, the this is like a newlywed game, you know? Like, <laughs> is there a prize, Chuck? <laughs> yes. <laughs> do have a, um, you you um, do get a prize at the end. I would say to you know to to not um, I don't know don't don't doubt yourself you know put yourself out there don't don't be afraid of speaking up. You know, don't be afraid of, of, of letting your voice be heard. And, and you know, um, I don't know. Well, you've come a long ways. Like I think about when we first met, like when we, I told you that we worked at the PD's office together. And I think about um, like one of the first interactions that we had professionally was, you know, I was sitting with her like a second chair on a jury trial. And I don't know if we just finished jury selection or we were about to start. And she had to get up and begin the the, the the questioning process, the voir dire, just like, I can't do it. I was like, yeah, you can just get up and do it, you know? And, and mind you, this was a few years back, but she's tried way more cases than I have now. And is a much more accomplished trial lawyer than, than I am and probably will ever hope to be. And it's just, it's amazing to see how you come from that point of being like, I, I can't do something to, you know, you could pick a jury now with your eyes closed and you can do it over Zoom. Not that they do that, but I think they actually did it in Hillsborough County. Really, you know. So I, I don't know. Maybe the, I don't know if that's the best advice. I mean, other than that, and and I also, well, on the other side, say don't be so stubborn. <laughs> but that's the prerogative. That's yeah, yeah, that, that just works with it. I do know this though. The one thing that I wish I was better at that that. Jen is so incredibly good at, especially as, as a lawyer and as a mom and everything else is, is being able to, you know, see the, the, the good in people and be able to, to understand and empathize. I mean, that's, I mean, that's such an important trait to have, but I think that's something that, again, I think you learned it from your mom and dad, but but, (laughs) um, they are, uh, empathetic people that I think they're the ones that, you know, have the most success in life, no matter what area you're in, is that ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes. You know, if you're going to, if you're going to prosecute someone and put them in jail, you know, it helps to know what the, what the jail smells like, you know, it helps to know where the jail is. And those are all things that I don't know if it was by design or not, but those are all things that I think Jen is, you know, she knows that sort of stuff, you know, having worked the other side and, and everything else. So, I don't know. Would you say those are the now? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. She said the same thing. And now comes the real question. 
which either you know uh, gets you into trouble or or not. Oh, we're gonna have a big fight after this. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice she's given you? The best piece of advice she's given to me. This shows whether you're listening to her or not. Calm down, chill out. <laughs> Probably is that it, or I don't know. Um, yeah, you know, don't don't get so wound up. I tend to get sort of keyed up sometimes. I think I've gotten a lot better. I think over time, but she's um, she's more even keeled than I am, you know. And so I think that uh, you've always been a, a calming influence, you know, on on me. Sometimes when you're told to chill, <laughs> that doesn't oh. make you want to. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think a pro- that's probably the, the best the best advice that I've been given. Um, yeah, and to yeah, and to to yeah, to be selective in your in your battles. You know, that's another one. You know, I I, I don't know that. Well, I, I've never really seen those newlywed games, but I, I could imagine that this is probably how they go. You both pass. I don't know what you win. I guess (laughs) more decades of blissful marriage. I guess, but oh, I hope so. She gave the same answers you did. So get out of here. Did you really? Oh wow, wow. Well, I I think that that's that's really cool. Yeah, that's why I prefaced by saying that either you get into into trouble or you well you you enjoy your dinner. Yeah. No, Mm -hmm. no, we um and we have very interesting dinners, and and I think that. You know, this is, is going to sound maybe really insensitive, but that's not my my goal. It's like, you know, and you're you're I think sort of on the precipice of this. You know, you've, you've talked about your significant other, you know, being a long ways away. Mm-hmm. Are you guys getting married, or is that is that the plan? Or, I hope so. I um, well, we we talk about it pretty much. We we have been talking about it for the past decade. Um, okay. <laughs> okay. So I had a stint in medical school myself, and during that time. We didn't get married because my ability to take out student loans was going to get affected by her making a crap ton more money. Um, Mm. And then uh, things didn't work out in that arena, so I came back to teaching. And now that she wants to attend medical school, it was nice to meet you. Thank you. He says, nice to meet you. Thank you. Oh, nice to meet you. Okay. Kids are calling. Yeah, the children came in for the third time. But I'm sorry. Anyway, no, yeah. I, now that she wants to to pursue medicine, it's it's the same exact scenario now, uh, right. where her ability I don't make nearly as much money as as she did even when she was working part time. But we didn't want my income to influence her ability to take out loans. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, she gets into medical school somewhere. But we didn't want that to be the the impediment to her being able to attend. So it it's mostly been purely, I hate to say it, but a, a, a mathematical, uh, you know, a mathematical argument for not getting married. We live together. We own this apartment together. Uh, so it, it's more or less, you know, the the only thing that would really change is we would file taxes jointly. Uh, but outside of that, you know, it, it's yeah. You guys are, are, are for all intents and purposes, we're we're essentially married. Well, that's, or at least it, it, that's I think the way it's, I see things. It's the idea of a of a partnership, you mm-hmm. know, and that's what I was about to say a minute ago. And I don't think I would have gotten slapped, but you know, you want to have, I think, at the end of the day, a partner, you know, somebody who there is that 
that I think I've talked about this before, that trust and loyalty and, and you put, and it becomes challenging, but you know this, if you've been with someone for years and years, you know that, you know, you have to oftentimes subordinate whatever you want, you know, or maybe even what you need at the time for the, the, the partnership itself or the two of you. And I've, again, I've gotten really, really lucky and um, I'm thankful every day that I have partner that I do and the, the extended family that I do you know I, I mentioned before I love my in-laws <laughs> you don't hear that a lot but I really do from from my siblings-in-law you know my brothers and sisters-in-law to my parents I mean they have been such wonderful people to me and, and welcomed me into their family and um, I'm just I, I'm truly blessed you know I, I really am to, to know because again I know that a lot of people don't have that that benefit and so I'm you know, I'm very, very thankful. And she's a great partner. You know, that's the best, that's the best thing I could say. And again, she's probably going to be really, she hates when I do stuff like this. I don't know if you've ever brought a significant other on to, to step in. I, but, yeah. well, the, the, the dynamic that at least I'm observing is the same dynamic we have in, in our home, but I am more in it more like Jen, I guess. And you're more like yeah. Julie, where I, I would be like, why would you do that? Why, why? <laughs> leave me alone. Oh, Adira, you you should have it, seen her the, face. And I was like, Hey, do you want to come be on the podcast? And she was like, no. And I was like, no, no, come on. He just has a quick question for you, you know, but yeah, uh, I, I would yeah. be similarly skeptical and, and angry about it, but also like, eh, I, I guess it, I didn't die. That's it. And, and that's what, you know, it's just so funny, but that's, Again, I, I hope that that's part of what I've brought to her life is that willingness to kind of push yourself out. And she is, again, she is very, very, um, I'm trying to think about the, the, the best way to put this, but she's so, so smart. And especially as a lawyer, so deliberative in her words, you know, I wish that I had that. I, you know, as I'm answering questions for you right now, I start talking and it, you know, away it goes, but she's, she's not like that. And it's really effective when she's in trial, you know, like I, every now and again, it hasn't obviously been in the past few months, but when she has, when she has a trial, you know, and to be able to go to the courthouse and watch her, it's like, damn, I wish I could do that. You know, I wish I could, you know, whether, whether it's on direct examination, you know, guiding the witness or crossing or you know, opening statements, closing arguments, you know, all of it, and especially interacting with judges. You know, part of what lawyers are always cautioned not to do is, you know, don't want to ask that question too many. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to keep talking after you've already made your point because the, then the point gets diluted or, or worse, someone changes their mind. And she doesn't do that, at least not that I've seen. So, yeah. I, I envy those people. I do too. I, I mean, I really, I really, you mean those that don't it's say too much? Or? Yes. It's annoying knowing when to stop and, and well, I, and I will practice that by stopping now. So I, uh, I wanted to, I know I've, I've taken way more of your time than, well. No, I love this. Okay, I, again, then in I that case, go. I will ask the questions in their detail. So some of these came from, uh, well, the last person I interviewed and some are, well, things that I picked out. Are are you the type of person that when you, I guess, presumably you need to purchase things, uh, are you the type of person that reads reviews and agonizes over those decisions? Or do you just go with your gut and say, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, we're buying that washer or whatever? Oh my gosh. Um, it, I'm gonna give you the lawyer answer. It depends. Okay. And the way it, it usually goes is like this: I start off 
I mean, if it's a big purchase, the more disciplined I think I'll be. But we've all found ourselves, you know, the other day, I have, a, I have aquarium, you know, a couple aquariums, you know, tropical fish. I, I know that. that I was told to ask uh, freshwater or saltwater. These are freshwater. Okay. And it's only I don't know I what that have, means, but I was told that whenever someone tells you they have an aquarium, you, you aquarium, ask that question. I'm not brave enough yet to, to try salt water, but I have two freshwater tanks. Actually, we have, you count the kids, we have three, but they, um, they're, I have angelfish, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but yeah, there's, there's a couple in, in each tank because they tend to get, they nip at each other. They're kind of aggressive fish, um, but they're very pretty. And so they're freshwater and um, the, the light bulb, the, the light burned out. And so I ordered a new light and then the other light broke on the other tank within a couple days. And with that one, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to buy a light bulb. I'm going to go LED lights. And they can run anywhere from $25 all the way up to you know, hundreds, probably even more than that. And so I'm, I'm on Amazon and I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm reading the reviews. And, I'm, and I started thinking, what, you know, and after about 45 minutes to an hour of doing this, not really knowing what it turned into, you know, I like this one, uh, click, <laughs> that was it. And, you know, the light comes a couple of days later and it's, of course, it's fine. You know, it fits and everyone's happy. But I, I think it really, it depends on what the, the purchase is. I, um, I usually tend to go looking at the reviews and, you know, if it's a car, you know, consumer reports, you know, that kind sure. of thing. Um, but, but I'm also somebody, we're creatures of habit. And, and if, if I've done something and it's worked, and even if it hasn't worked perfectly, if, if it's worked well enough for me to get used to, I will go back to that every time as opposed mm -hmm. to trying something new and different that could, you know, confound me later on. Um, so I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's a, if that's just the way we all are, or if that's a, a more kind of conservative approach that I have to, uh, to stuff. But I'll, we, I'll uh, put in a plug for, uh, I guess it's a similar website to consumer reports, but are you aware of wire cutter? No. Huh? Oh, that's a great website. Oh, tell me I, about it. I'll look it up right now. Wirecutter.com. They publish reviews and, um, uh, unlike like YouTube reviewers where they get, you know, there's some sort of financial relationship between the company and the, the person uh -huh. doing the review. In this case, they buy everything that they're reviewing with their own money. And then it, it tends to be because they're not financially tied to the advertiser in any way. It, it tends to be an unvarnished. Uh, well, I, I put more stock in their reviews than anything else. Than anything else. Yeah. And I guess I never thought about it, but, I do exactly what you just described, which is once something works, you just keep going back to it instead of trying something else. So anything, anytime I need something like the washer and dryer died, I just went on wire cutter and I looked to see if they had, you know, a review for best washer and dryer. And I, the first one, I didn't care about the reviews. If wire cutter says it's good, it's gotta it's be good. And then yeah. I just buy it. I need a new keyboard because the old one died. What keyboard does wire cutter say is the best? Okay, I, I buy that and I have never been happier typing in my entire wow. life. The keyboard is just wow. it, it's amazing. <laughs> so now that's even, actually awesome. Even when my parents ask me, hey, we need this blah blah blah, reasonably expensive thing, what should we get? Go to wire cutter and whatever it says at the very top, just buy it and don't ask questions. It will it's save true. you so much time. I I'm gonna give it a go because that you know, that's, and it, it, uh, the reviews are written by a bunch of nerds like me and the, <laughs> the 
evaluations are not typically as fluffy as you would find on YouTube. So they'll say, you know, if they're comparing standing desks, they'll take a, a sound meter to the desk and measure how much noise in decibels each motor makes. And it's wow. like, thank you. I have found my people. These are not just, you know, saying, oh, it's cool that it goes up and down, but it makes this much noise. And I don't know why I care about it, but it's important to know that my desk makes 38 decibels amount of exactly. noise. Exactly. No more, right? And, and yeah. it's exactly that. So it, it yeah, it, it, I am a very, very fond customer of Wirecutter. I'm going to, I'm going to give it a go. It looks like if I'm on the right website, it looks like it's part of, um, is it part of the New York times? Is I think that, New York it, times uh, bought them out last year, okay. maybe two. It's been more recent that they, they got bought out. Um, very cool. Very cool. Well, we here at the, at the, um, at the high house, like when we have to make the big purchases, see, I have a real bad habit of doing this. You know, when you were mentioning YouTube videos a second ago, I, and I know where I picked this up from my father. I like to try to think I can fix everything. Well, let me try to fix it first. You know, let me, and so I'll watch some YouTube videos like we have right now, a broken microwave, mm -hmm. right? And I've convinced myself, and it's a it's a microwave that's it's part of a microwave oven combo kind sure. of deal. And so, you know, they, they both run off the same power source and the microwave still lights up. It just doesn't heat food. You know, the little tray still turns and the clock still works when it's plugged in. So I started watching, you know, YouTube videos. And so I, I believe that there's something wrong with the diode, right? I don't know what a diode is. I mean, it involves electricity, whatever. And so I've convinced myself that if I just buy a diode and I watch these videos, I'll be able to, you know, change this thing out. It's really easy, you know, right? The <laughs> famous last words. The problem is that a microwave, I guess, I never knew this, but I found this in my research. You know, you can kill yourself. I guess mm -hmm. it's the capacitors, right? Right. So here I am playing this high stakes game of can daddy fix it? You know, <laughs> like can, can, uh, can carry high tackle the microwave and, and round and round, you know, I've been going with myself, but more importantly with, again, Jen, who puts up with me, you know, well, I unplug it because I read that if you unplug it and allow the capacitor to kind of drain Discharge. or peter out in the right, there you go. De you said decharge. Is that what Discharge. it is? Discharge. That's it. Um, <laughs> have you ever fixed a microwave? Have I haven't fixed a microwave, but I, in, in my previous life, I built a lot of headphone amps and speaker amps and speakers. And so oh, I, I am, I have had my fair share of capacitors that decided to give up the magic smoke inside them or said, That's, Hey, don't touch me. Oh. And, and I'm really, again, I don't want to die. You know, this, this, this little project isn't worth it, but um, I, I, if I, I think, if I have any say in the matter, a microwave is probably not uh, a good place to start your DIY electrician <laughs> career. See, you know, stay away see from microwaves. Anything that has the potential to kill you, you probably don't want to start with that until you know, know you have enough facility and you've tried smaller projects easier things that yeah. and so what will probably end up happening or what i i'm not going to admit this yet what i know will end up happening is i will i'll reach a point where either i won't get it even done beyond unplugging it until my wife says we just need to buy a new microwave you know and then we end up going and doing it or i'll order the part and then again i'll get cold feet especially because of this conversation now that i shouldn't yeah I shouldn't a, a microwave it. is I not unless you know what you're doing you, you don't want to be going you know surfing inside of a microwave 
case in point, you go to the, it's a GE microwave. I go on the website and I find the part that I need. I find my microwave. I find everything else. I go to order it. It's like, no, you got to call the service technician, dude. You can't do that. Certain things are user serviceable. Uh, Other things, they don't want you to kill yourself and then there'll be a lawsuit. That's, Uh, yeah. I'm taking this. See, now I'm taking the trusted, trusted advice of counsel and I will, I'll let this go. So, so now what we'll do is once we get past the stage of can daddy fix it, you know, then it turns into, or is daddy going to try to fix it? Or is daddy going to make us all halt our lives before we get it done? Then we move into the shopping and maybe we'll look at wire cutter for, uh, do they have microwaves on wire cutter? I have no idea. I I, I would check. I haven't needed, I haven't needed to purchase a microwave yet. The one that was in the kitchen when we bought the apartment uh the clock doesn't well the time works so it tells you what time it is but it doesn't tell you how much time you have left when you're heating something oh. so then oh, you basically have to count the number of times you're pressing that 30 second button and it's like yep. oh if you want it three minutes then you press it six times <laughs> but then it, it's just black so it still works and yeah. it's like well Maybe it's a happy surprise. You you pull out your food say, and it's either hot or it's not. And you run the whole thing again. And you put it back in. It adds that layer of kind of chance. And yeah, that's some excitement. And that's manageable excitement. That is, you know. <laughs> well, that's like the kind of joy that we used to get. Truly. I mean, you remember way back in the day when we were, when we were much younger, before the, the time of cell phones and, and voicemail and everything else, where if the phone rang, right, and you didn't have caller ID, mm-hmm. like you didn't know who it was. Could it be a solicitor? Yeah. Could it be grandma? Yeah. You know, like I kind of miss those days. You know, I, I sort of miss, you know, every now and again when I'll get the unidentified call or a private call, mm-hmm. you know, I'm almost like, oh, I'm taking this one. You know, <laughs> who is this? Let's look and see. You know, and then I regret it sometimes when I don't take one. Like I got one from the court the other day mm-hmm. and it was uh, a judge calling to um, actually I was getting appointed to a case and I, I saw it come up and I was actually, truth be told, was in the middle of teaching a class. And when, then when I saw that it was, you know, oh, I just kind of put it to the side. And then later I got an email saying, we tried to call you, you know, you weren't available. It's like, ah, oh. but that was a private or it was a string of numbers that didn't make any sense. And mm-hmm. So that's as close as we get now to having that sort of excitement that existed back in the day. I kind of miss that. I don't, I don't know why, but, you know, that's, you know, the ability to, to not screen every single uh, phone call that comes through. That had nothing to do with anything. I'll move to this next one, and it's fairly deep or incisive, I guess. I I really like this question. Can you recall a point when your relationship with your parents changed and they began to see or treat you more as an adult rather than a child? Uh, And then I'm going to follow up with what the if-then statements are and then come back to it. If the interviewee has adult children, the question could be rephrased as to when the interviewee began to see his or her offspring as adults rather than children. Okay, so I'll leave that to however you wish to answer that. That that is such a good question. Um, huh. You know, and I would I would love to have. If, if, if you could ask this of, of my parents, you know, the point, you know, that, that second part of it, you know, mm-hmm. the if then. Um, I can recall. Well, let me take a step back even further. Um, growing up, and I don't know if it's because I was sort of the, the generation, you know, I'm a, um, 
I guess I'm a young Gen Xer, you know, like I was born in the, in the late 70s, I was born in 78. And, um, you know, we were latchkey kids. You know, there was a lot of time that I spent younger at home by myself. You know, that, that was something that really, like I look at my kids now, it was right around the age that my older son is, you know, first grade, he's going into second grade where it wasn't uncommon for my parents to leave me home alone, you know? And um, not to say they were treating me as an adult, but I always, from, you know, during, during, even during those very formative times, I always felt like they were entrusting me to kind of make good decisions, you know? And like, you know, I wasn't allowed to go swimming when no one was home, even though we had a swimming pool, you know? And it was the temptation always there. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like, that I, that I wanna go do, of, of course. Um, but when it really came pronounced, I think, and, and it's, this was more between me and my, my, ah, I saw it with my mom too, me and my dad. Um, it was probably late high school, you know, around the time that you figure out you're going to college. And I was lucky when I, when I turned 16, my parents were like, no, you're not getting a car, you know, none of that. I wanted one. I begged and, you know, thankfully there was this little red truck that had belonged to my grandfather that, um, we'd had, you know, he passed away and we had this truck. So I had a car I could use, but I only on rare circumstances was I allowed to drive to school and everything else. But around my 18th birthday, just before, just after my dad bought me a, a sports car when I was a senior in high school. Wow. And um, yeah, I know it was, it was, it was a sports car. Yeah, I mean, it was a sports car. It was a Ford probe, you know? And so this is back in the late nineties. But I remember him, you know, buying that. And I remember being really surprised because it was a surprise, you know, a total shock. And um, I'm very lucky. I don't know that I'll be able to do that for my kids, I hope. But I remember recognizing then kind of the trust because for all the reasons that my parents had said, you're not going to get a car, we're not going to buy you a, you know, they didn't use this term, but legally a dangerous instrumentality for you to go and, you know, jeopardize your own life and that of other people. When that happened, you know, and, and realizing that, okay, now I've got this, this car, I can, you know, drive as fast as I want, you know, the titles in my name, you know, all of it. Um, I don't know, that was probably one of the first times. And then I think, fast forward to during my freshman year of high school, going through, or not, excuse me, a freshman year of college, rather, going through, um, you know, one of those breakups that you have with, with a you know, significant other. And, and I remember coming home, and it was around the same time I don't know if you've ever had your wisdom teeth removed, but sure. I had my, my, my wisdom it's teeth. It's a very pleasant experience. I advise that's every, it. That's <laughs> it. I hope it was, everyone it. Does was jo- it was joyous, right? It exactly. Was absolutely- I strongly recommend it. You know, five stars in the Amazon review. But when they, um, well, anyway, I come home, you know, this is one of those rites of passage though. And again, you think about it happening in your, you know, your late teens, early twenties. And I, I came home and, um, I just had my wisdom teeth taken out and I was just, I was hurting, I was feeling bad and I was sad and depressed. And I remember my mom telling me, you know, as I'm, I guess I'm just being upset and sad and it's late at night, you know, we were watching a movie or something. And um, I mentioned this breakup that I'd been through and how sad I was. And she was like, you know, son, as you get older, you realize that sometimes people, you know, they don't love you the same way that you love them. And it was a, I don't know, for some reason that exchange just really stuck with me. It was her speaking to me. I didn't feel as though I was her son that's had this heartbreak and everything else, but it was, it was still, but it was also, it was kind of like, welcome to the big leagues, you know, <laughs> like it was this, it was, you know, and she was very warm about it and, and, and you know, 
paternal. You know, I think that she was, I uh, might've been laying on her lap or something, but it was, that was just an experience that stuck with me as well. And, and I think about that drive, you know, when you first go away to school, you know, or whatever it is, whether you take a bus or you drive yourself or you're you know, on a train, a plane, when you first leave to go to, to college, you know, or maybe for others, if you don't have that experience when you first get your own place, you know, and you, you step foot in the door, you know, and maybe lock it behind you, you know, you have this realization that you can be whoever you want to be, you know, you can kind of have this, this, if you choose you know, a rebirth, you know, a, a new identity, you know, you can, and I just remember thinking that all of those sort of things, you know, happened, you know, within months of each other, you know, going away to school, you know, again, when you, when you get out there. And, and I just, I remember there being a, a stark difference, you know, beyond those times and how my, my parents, you know, treated me. And again, I always had a lot of independence when I was younger. And thankfully I didn't, I screwed up, but I didn't get caught as much as I probably should have. Um, but um I know that they, they always trusted me, you know, and so, um, but when did they really start treating me as an adult? It was, it was right around that. Again, that, that transition, I think, from high school or from, from, you know, late teens to adulthood, you know, and then moving on. So those were, those were some of the, I guess, the, the kind of benchmarks. Benchmark. Landmarks. Sure. These are great questions, by the way. As they a, came you, from, you found these in the. They, they came from a very impressive individual. I, I don't like sharing who who came up with the questions. No, so, no, but they're they're so uh, good. Yeah, I, I I was taken aback by this one. I, I really enjoyed it. Okay, so for the last question, what title would oh, you give your episode? Oh man, <laughs> and I love the titles. Looking at everyone else's, you know, and I love your 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 subheadings, and you kind of give everyone a taste of. Oh, I don't know. Um, I definitely, well, again, I'm most proud of you know, my family and the family aspect. You've gotten to meet all of the, all of the players in the, um, in the high crew. That was I new. I, I, I really enjoyed that. And again, yeah. I didn't plan it. So I, but in the future, no, I no. wonder how many people would, would be as generous in sharing their family with me and, and perhaps not just with me, but on the podcast, even though it's no, you know, people can't see the, the young ones and they can't see your wife, but it, it is a huge trust that you're placing in me that, you right. know, I'm not going to do anything stupid with it. So, uh, I, I feel honored that that happened and that I was, you know, given a, a little glimpse into the carry home, uh, but I'm also wondering how many other people, I, I started thinking about that when your wife came into the, the view, uh-huh. the, the first thing was, this is cool. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is awesome. I, I never planned it. And now if, if this is the bar that, you know, the other episodes have to live up to, oh, or that's geez. the standard, then <laughs> am I going to be disappointed when someone says, yeah, I, I don't want to bring in my significant other, or I, I don't want to talk about my kids. But anyhow, that, that was neither well, here nor there. Yeah, and I don't, again, I don't know what I would, but again, what would I name it? You know, I, I mentioned earlier, and this is something that I really thought about when we, you know, when we were, when you thankfully invited me to come participate in this whole thing. You know, you, if you start thinking about something like this too much, you know, you realize that, that oh my gosh, how much do I want to expose myself? You know, how much, and you've, you've said it a number of times, feel free to dodge the answer, feel free to... I live my life a lot of times, I think, kind of, it's not an open book, you know, I don't do social media, and I'm not, you know, into those sort of things. But I feel like 
if if I take the time to you know to get to know someone, you know, like I want to get to know them completely and totally, and I like to be. I don't know if transparent is the right word, but I like to be kind of out there. You know, what you see is what you get. And even though we are all complicated, um, you... Um, you won't believe what me and Andy found. I won't believe. What did you and Andy find? <laughs> you found him. Yeah. Well, that's good. We'll, well get, I found him. You found him. We'll get in there and go do a battle, you guys. Battle him out. Yeah, I see it. I see that one over there. Go do it. It's a It is. It's going to be an exciting one. <laughs> That's that's what teaching sometimes is like as well. They'll come in, and when I close the door, I find that they want to come in more. Mm-hmm. You know, so. But, but anyway, um, as far as the title, or as far as being being an open book, and you know, oh, again, thinking about this whole this whole process, and, and I've never been a part of something like this, and I guess I've been interviewed a few short times in my life. You know, it was back in college, you know, and a lot of things were more of a joke back then. But um, I started thinking about this this experience that that i had and i referenced it earlier that i really would i shared a lot of times with students but i would love it for it to be something as part of the the podcast um episode or or this this world um and this goes back to something professional but it really it liberated me in a way that i i never anticipated and and, um i had this case this is back in tampa so we're looking back years ago where it was one of the first few cases I took when I was actually out on my own, you know, in private practice. I left the public defender's office and I had this, um, this without going into too much of the, of the fact pattern, it was, it was a co-defendant case where I represented uh, a young guy. You know, he was in his late teens, he might've been 20 years old and him and his father were accused of, of, of committing a crime in concert. It was a robbery and, um, it was a series of strategic decisions that were made that ultimately led to the, the, the father and son's cases being severed, right? We tried them separately. You know, we, as myself and my co-counsel representing the, um, the son, we decided to separate, you know, and then we believed that the state would prosecute dad first. He was more of the, the in, in my assessment, I think objectively, he was the more of the active participant. Mm-hmm. Son was just kind of, you know, on the periphery, but still they believe that enough. And, and the prosecutor didn't do that. You know, she tried the son first. And I think her her mindset was if she did that, that would put pressure on dad to either cooperate, to not let his son go down for something. That, well, there's no, you know, I don't know how the saying goes, but, you know, as far as honor among those that are, you know, there wasn't a lot of that. So we ended up having the trial. And, and this young man, you know, he was charged with a, a robbery with a firearm, which carried a minimum mandatory prison sentence. And there was a potential that he could go to prison for life. And in the buildup to the sentencing, you know, after he was convicted, there was a lot of, we, we thankfully avoided that minimum mandatory sentence. And, and that was good. You know, I guess we, we myself and co-counsel did a, a good job in that regard, but we were, especially me, was still very focused on the fact that he could be going away to prison for a really long time. And that wasn't the first time I had a client like that, but this case was, like I said, it was one of the first ones being out in private practice. Um, I think it was my first jury trial, you know, and as a, as a you know, solo practitioner. And I, um, I'm really upset, you know, and I'm stressed out. And, and you know, knowing that, that there's so much exposure, I, I was talking with a group and these were other lawyers and there were judges. And, you know, we were just again, just kind of, we were working through our feelings and stuff. And I remember this guy saying this to me, you know, this, this, this very wise 
judge who wasn't someone I practiced in front of, and I really only knew him through this, you know, again, this kind of um, social setting. He, he was like, look, I got some advice for you. And this was in private, just the two of us. He said, one of two things is gonna happen tomorrow during your sentencing here, right? He said, you, you, uh, you may go in and the judge may, um, he may give your client a time served sentence and that young man walks out of court, a free man, case is over, it's done, you know, and, and you know, you're gonna be proud as a peacock. You're gonna be strutting out right behind. He said, or it could be the other result. You know, your, your, your client, you know, he, he could get the worst of the worst, he'd get the maximum. And then you're going to be all upset. You're going to be beating yourself up. You're going to be claiming, you know, that this was, <laughs> this, ah, you know, you're depressed. He said, and neither one of those two are the right response. You know, the right response is you go in, you do your job, right? And whatever happens, as long as you know that you've done everything within your power, right? You haven't cut corners. You haven't thrown your clients, you know, under the bus or somehow failed to represent him adequately. Whatever happens it's what's supposed to happen and it has nothing to do with you. Neither one of those have anything to do with you. You don't get the glory, right? And at the same time, you don't internalize the, the shame or the disappointment. You go in and you do your job. And I remember hearing that. And that's something, it, 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 and maybe it's a simple allegory or a simple piece of advice, but it had such a huge impact on me, you know, because it, it made me feel better, obviously. And, and then going in and, and you know, I, I knew that I'd done my best. We'd done our best during trial. We'd done, and, and you know, you work through it all and you realize that, that the result, it, it's going to be what it's going to be, you know? And that I think was, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. And that was just such a huge thing. So <laughs> I don't know if that could be the title of the podcast. I'm not sure, but that philosophy that, you know, the, the, the sooner you can kind of separate and say, it's not about you. I think the better you become doing your job you know the, the, the sooner that you can you know and that doesn't mean you can't be proud of what you've done it doesn't mean that you, you, you should on the other side of things throw your hands up and give up you know but you've got to find that balance and i'm still working on it but i know that, that whoever that person was before i received that advice and, and who i've become since then i, I think i've I've improved, you know, and so I don't know, again, that's just something that I really, really, and I, I love sharing that, especially with students when they get upset about grades or when we do that mock trial that I was discussing, you know, if you happen to be on the losing end, I always tell them that story, I'm like, guys, you know, you've, I've watched you, you've worked so hard, all of you have prepared, you're, you know, you're, you're ready to go do this. And if you happen to be on the other side, just remember that it's, ain't about you you know you're doing this you know you are representing that person you're, you're you know i don't know <laughs> fair enough i i some of what you said reminded me of a conversation i had with sungji who who's incredibly private and uh we, we were talking about the i forget how it came up up. Emily Dickinson, she sent me a text, or I sent her a text. So, someone sent someone a text, and earlier in the morning we were talking about art being made or, or created for the sake of creation by the artist, or art being created for the sake of uh, being consumed by the adoring hordes, uh, and whether it's okay for not okay, but whether it's good 
to hide a piece of art and not let other people share in the brilliance of it, or if it's okay to, uh, or if it's better for the world to see it. Mm-hmm. And now I remember it was the exact question I was going to ask you of the people yeah. that don't feel comfortable sharing, whether it be on a podcast or, you know, the, the, I think the exact phrasing that Sanji shared was, uh, I'll be very frank and honest and, you know, I'll be direct, but the moment the recording light goes on, I won't be saying a lot of the things that I'm saying to you in private. So uh. in, in fact, she was the first person I asked uh, if, if she would consider being on the podcast. And so I, I've still been struggling. There have been many people that just haven't responded, which is fine. And that doesn't bother me nearly as much as the people that respond but say, eh, not, not for us, for, for some smorgasbord of reasons where they'll say, sure. we don't feel comfortable sharing, we live private lives. And every single conversation I've had, I, I've learned something about people that obviously I didn't know about them. So I, I got a glimpse into your yeah. family and, and more about you. But more importantly, it, it gives me something to think about. So I'll probably think about the stuff we talked about and think about, you know, the dynamic you have with your significant other and how that is, is similar to the one that I have with Julie and what I can do to, to better approach the middle. And it, again, that re- maybe that wasn't the intention. And I didn't know coming into this conversation that that's what I was going to get out of it. Come out of it, right. But I learn from them. Yeah. And I think that people's reluctance to appear on the podcast is something I take personally because I feel like it robs me of that learning experience. <laughs> so <laughs> there's two things there. How do you stop making it personal? Because I feel very sad yeah. that, you know, it, it, there are some incredible people that I've met at Palm Beach State and people that I know only tangentially about, and, and they have very right. rich backgrounds uh, to where I would love to ask them more questions about that particular thing or just... You know, tell me about yourself and I'll, I'll think of questions to follow up on. And when those individuals write back saying, not now, uh, okay, so you're saying there's a chance and then I usually keep bugging them again and again. But when they say no, two things come to mind immediately. The first one, how do I stop it from being personal? Because it, it, it genuinely is, in my opinion, robbing me of a chance to learn and, and think more about things. I, I'm not smart enough to, uh, you know, become the, the great wise grand wizard on my own. I, I tend to come to better realizations after I've had a chance to talk to people. And, and right. you know, oftentimes things that are obvious that get said stay in my mind better than, you know, just thinking and saying, oh, well, that was obvious. Why didn't I think of that earlier? <laughs> and then the second is I, I find it, Similar to art being created, where people's stories have have a great, uh, I, I guess, per, people like listening to stories of other people that may or may not have gone through something similar themselves. Right. right. And, and sometimes it happens through tragedy. Sometimes it happens through the banality of life. And you know, oh, I, I went to college and I had a breakup and I spoke with my mom, and that seems 
very even keel. That seems par for the course. That sounds like something, you know, everyone goes through. But then sometimes right. people have had some very tough decisions to make uh, and, and have gone through difficult passages or, or times in their life. And I feel like that should be shared. Yeah. Yeah. So question one, all of it, how do I stop taking it personally? And question two, if you were to write to them as a response, I usually just say, thank you. And if you ever change your mind, uh, this, the, 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 the invitation is a standing invitation. Just let me know and uh, I'll, I'll make time. Um, mm -hmm. Would you, what would you say to that? Would yeah, you? that's, wow. It, it, well, I think on the first part of it, you know, the reason you can't take it personally is because, I mean, again, I, I don't know that they would view it as them most of the time. Again, mm -hmm. I don't know who the, the, the folks are, but they don't, they don't view it as them denying you an opportunity to learn about them. They, I think, view it as they're basically protecting themselves from, you know, exposing sure. whatever it may be, whether it's the banality, you know, of, of life or something that's a lot deeper than that, um, you know, an injury or a trauma. Um, so I, I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would tell you not to take it personally because of that, because usually that's more out of a sense of self-preservation. But the follow-up though, and I think what I would do that some might find off-putting is to write back and say, hey, what could I do to make you more comfortable with this? because, and here's, you know, here's why, and again, the way you articulated the value of, of, of podcasts and, you know, even something like, like, you know, talk therapy, you know, even something like going through, you know, like for, for people that have ever been part of a 12 step program or whatever, you know, getting in and sharing those experiences, you know, sharing, whether it's a loss, you know, or, or an embarrassment, especially, you know, a shameful episode that I think strengthens all of us, you know, and I think that a lot of times that can lead to that empathy that I was, you know, mentioning before and, and, and you know, the, the value in sharing. You know, and so I think there's always going to be people that, again, are inherently more private. But at the same time, you're very good at interviewing, you know, oh, <laughs> I don't know you. if you, you know, but you definitely, you know, I think that you have that that talent or, or maybe you've, you've worked on building the skill or, or it's both where people want to talk to you. And I think once you get it rolling, you know, people will you know, they will open up naturally. And so maybe it's putting them at ease. You know, maybe it's convincing those that, that there really is a value to this that's, you know, even if it's just for me, but I think that, you know, you will see the value if there's a, I don't know, a utilitarian component, you know, it helps everyone. I, I, think I know you have is. a lot of listeners, you know. Like, oh, I, I do. Yeah. And I wish that the emails that I've received in, in private were things that I could share outside of just anecdotally saying that this is what someone wrote. Uh, right. but, but frequently, less frequently now than before, uh, I, I would get an email from some faculty member or some staff member that's listening to things and, and say, oh, I, I could not stop listening to Matt Klaus's episode, or I couldn't stop listening to Tracy Siucci's episode, because I also come from a huge, not Italian, but Hispanic family, and we have the same exact dynamic that everyone moved from Venezuela to the United States and uh, the, the experience of the immigrant was, was something similar. Or uh, I also am into 
fishes. I don't know if that's even a thing or what would that hobby <laughs> right. be called? I guess. Yeah, yeah, I have aquariums. Yeah, I, I have aquariums. I, I don't know what to, to call that, but uh, oftentimes it'll come up as um, I really enjoy that this person talked about their faith, which yeah. you know, religion and politics tend to be these taboo topics, but that's where you, you kind of get the crux of what this person really believes. And, and sure. so those are things that unless they come up naturally, I, I tend not to bring up only for fear of offending people that I work with. because I, I still have to maintain a professional relationship with them. But on the whole, it's almost always been, I really appreciated the, the, the fact that this person went to high school and got a car on their 18th birthday because those are the same things that happened with me in my life. So I thought that I was, you know, not necessarily, I don't want to call it uniquely vanilla, but it, it's connections between people that perhaps you didn't know existed. And maybe that gives someone a talking point with someone else who had a, a Ford sports car on their 18th birthday. Uh, and maybe they see yeah. graduate. I don't know. I'm projecting here, but it, it's often come up where, uh, single female parents have written in and said, uh, we really struck a chord with Kathy's interview because she was, you know, taking care of her, of a young baby while she was talking with me. And uh, I, I wonder how many of those parallels will get brought up with your interview because you had a bit of everything. Sure. Um, I, yeah, outside of, of sharing that utilitarian view anecdotally, which I know that doesn't carry as much weight as, you know, someone sending that email to the entire union group directly and saying, this helped me get through this or blah, blah, blah. I feel very happy when I see that email, but I, I also can't say copy paste. Let, let me share it with everyone else <laughs> and show that it is indeed, you know, helping other people outside of my selfish need to, to, to have something to think about before I go to bed. Right. But right. that's, but, 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 but there's nothing wrong with that. I don't know. Like that. <laughs> I, I agree I mean, that's, that there's nothing wrong with it. How do I convince other uh, how do I convince I, yeah. other people <laughs> that there's that, nothing that, wrong that with that? Really <laughs> that really is that in the grand scheme exactly. of things, they would be doing other people uh, a, favor, yeah. a, a favor by uh, again. It doesn't need you to know, be something traumatic. It could just be something simple, like I really enjoyed well, having ice cream. I don't know. I, I'm yeah, trying to think of vanilla things. And I was, you know, I, I was a little apprehensive when we got started. And again, I, you know we all like and we all have these experiences i was a little apprehensive he's gonna ask me a lot of probing questions but once i listened to the other podcast you know and kind of heard i was like oh this is you know we're just gonna get in and have a, you know, a conversation and um i don't know like i, I think that they inherently there are some people and you mentioned politics a few minutes ago but i think that you really can boil all of our especially our two-party politics down to a notion where there's a group of people that are more comfortable with with sharing Mm -hmm. Right. Sharing resources, sharing uh, <laughs> whatever it is with, with sharing, with, with, with giving of themselves, whether that's time or money or what have you. And there's another group who, again, you know, and I'm not I don't mean to call them selfish, but they're just not as into sharing. There's more this idea that I've earned something. This is mine. I should have the ability to decide how this is this is spent. I should be able to you know, it's much you know, and again, I don't know that that has anything to do with the way that 
that people respond to the podcast as far as their willingness to participate. But, you know, I think inherently we, all of us, no matter what kind of camp you fall into, if you give something a shot, you know, something like this, you know, usually good comes out of it. You know, I, I don't believe, you know, cause that was my first, very first concern. I was like, what is this rated? I was right there, I get on and maybe I've done this and I haven't realized it set a bunch of stupid stuff. That's, that's made me look really, really, really bad. But, um, you know, I, I don't think that, that that risk is there. And I don't think you're aiming to do anything like that. You know, you're not trying to put people on the spot or give them these, these gotcha moments that are going to end up going viral that embarrass the hell out of them, and the school and their family. And that's not what this is about. You know, you're not Howard Stern. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> I wish I were Howard Stern. He's say, loaded. But, but he is. And but he's he, got a Neumann s- U87 mic. I've become a, a, a mic snob now. Is that what gives you that sultry voice? Because I got to tell you, you've got the velvety <laughs> kind of, you know, I like it. I'm serious. Like it's, it, it sounds easy on, it's easy on the ears and the, it makes the communication flow. You know, I'd like but, to think it's, it's 10% my register and 90% probably the mic, but the microphone uh, helps. But yeah. But you, um, you sound good either way. Thank you. And again, Howard, Howard sounds good too. And he's a good interviewer as well, but I was using that more of an example of just, you know, people, how they end up saying things that maybe they don't intend to, but at the same time, if you're going on the Howard Stern show, you know, you know, the expectation or you you should know walking in what's going to happen. Yeah. And I guess hopefully with more of more of, I need a title though, you know, more of that will help people, you know, to realize that, Hey, this is, this is fun. And this is great. And that it was, I don't know if it was born out of the, the pandemic and the quarantine, or if it was something that you'd been, planning to do a long time and just the, um, the opportunity presented itself. It was um, born out of, uh, those mealtime zoom meetings I started in response to the students saying that, you know, we, we, we feel lonely and we feel disconnected. So I said, okay, well, I can't really do much in the way of, you know, potentially helping people financially, or I can't get you a job or I, I cannot pay you or, or give you money, but I can share my time. I have to eat. So might as well eat on Zoom and then, hey, if you want to eat at the same time, come join me on Zoom. And I, I, they, I had an, a, an older mic or a different mic that I was using at the time. And they said, oh, you have a deep voice. And, okay, w- what does that mean? Or what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> Is that a compliment? Right. I, I, I didn't know where that was going. And they said, well, you also have a fancy mic. And for whatever reason, those two things... Uh, I guess to the students and, and the faculty members that were in there said, well, you should have a radio show or, a, you know, a podcast. Yeah. And I, I brushed it off saying, I, I know nothing about it. I'm terrible at talking with strangers. And, uh, I am an introvert that my girlfriend has been trying to, to get me out of my shell for the longest time. And I, I still think I have a very long way to go, but all those things kind of culminated in a YouTube search of, more out of curiosity, not out of a desire to want to do it, but let's see what, what does one need to do in order to start a podcast? And then it turned into a, a, a I, I'm a, a 12 year old at heart. I enjoy toys. So then it's like, oh, so you can buy a new microphone and then that microphone has this characteristic and it'll, you know, accentuate. You can't really modify, at least I don't know enough about editing stuff to modify my voice. But if I can get something that accentuates the lower end of my voice, the brace frequencies, better than the mic I have, then that might be a worthwhile pursuit. 
And yeah. then it also became, you know, an engineering and a physics and a math quest to, to figure out how noise filtering algorithms work. And then all these things were like, oh, so I can try to get out of my comfort zone and also play with new toys and have a way of justifying it to the CFO of the family. <laughs> and uh, so that, that's how all of that happened. It yeah. was a desire to play with new toys. It wasn't a desire to, to, to do anything else other than how do I justify wanting to buy a new mic to my significant other? Yep. And, it, and it, so, well, <laughs> so <laughs> many things come out of that combination, yeah. again, of wanting to play with the toys. And then for, for me, at least, I, I feel that same kind of drive, you know, and you, st and you stumble into things also, you know. Yeah, like I, I found I have... Again, to go back to the, to the learning aspect of things, I have learned more through these conversations than I have at the cursory, polite, how's it going? How's your family doing? That kind of stuff at graduation or development day where it's, a, it's born more out of politeness than and, and almost social necessity uh, yeah. or social customs and, and negotiations, social negotiations that you, you encounter because that's what's expected of you, as opposed to, oh, so Carrie had to struggle with this, and you know he had right. a heartache at in when he was nineteen, and he right. also did boneheaded things like not go to a final and stay out partying, and uh, <laughs> you know, so right. yeah. it, it it doesn't necessarily make me feel better about myself, but I don't feel unique or isolated on this island. I feel that yeah. other people have had similar struggles that you know I I am not. Uh, and similar successes. Yeah. Well, I think about, I think it was Matt, Dr. Klaus's, um, his podcast. So he talked about, was it, did he mention the imposter kind of thing? You feel like, wait a second, maybe I don't. It's come up a few here. times. I, I, I know Tracy mentioned it. Maybe you know, yeah. Matt mentioned it as well. But it's, I think that a lot of us as human beings, but maybe something that draws us into, into teaching or whatever is we sort of have that, is it an insecurity? Is it, you know, I don't know, you know, and I think that sometimes we compensate for that, you know, part of what I really, you know, I, I love about, again, the privilege of being a professor is, is to, you know, um, to, to get up and, and, and like I said before, you know, demystify things, but it's also to interact mm -hmm. and to seek that, that reassurance that, you know, this is going to sound so funny. It's in a, I mean, this tongue in cheek, but like I tell especially new adjunct professors, when they come to teach in the, in the paralegal studies program, I'm like, even on your worst day, okay, even when you're, you're having, because we have bad days teaching, you know, sometimes, sometimes you're doing really well, and other times you're struggling, you need a V8, you know, you need something to, to help you. Um, I'll say, even on your worst day, realize that you're most likely, unless something really strange is going on, you're the smartest lawyer in the room, mm -hmm. you know? And so, and then like, again, I use most of the time, you're the smartest PhD in the room, right? So you can, you can do this, you know, the same sort of stuff. But I think we do that to, to reassure ourselves or to, you know, we, we engage in this profession because it, I don't know, it, it reminds us that we have value and that we are sharing the value of, of, of our value, what we know, you know, our life experiences. But you know, again, I've never been brilliant enough to think of having like the meal with students, but I know some of the greatest classes that we've had since this whole remote instruction thing has started is where we'll go in with a topic and it'll take us down a path. And then, you know, whereas I think back in the day when we we're all in the classroom together and you can see everyone and, you know, you want to get back on track. But with this, 
we just keep going, you know, and there's not that same desire to, to kind of control it. And we've had some really good talks about, you know, almost existential things, you mm -hmm. know, about people getting sick, you know, and I think of my administrative law class last spring, the student was talking about them having to shut down at work because of the virus. And, you know, and we, we just started going through, you know, and then another uh, student, she works in a pharmacy, you know, she's a pharmacy technician. And so she starts talking about the, the people that come in, especially the older people. And, you know, we end up having this discussion that, yes, it's related to administrative law, but it was also, all it was therapeutic, you know, and it was, this is right when things were just, when I mean, they're still terrible, but, but just super weird and we're all processing it and, and getting more used to it. And so I think all in the same kind of, um, they're all the species of the same type thing, you know, the podcast, the eating together, the, the, the having the discussions, you know, during class that aren't directly related to the, to the curriculum or the learning outcomes that we're focused on. And I like it. I really, I've enjoyed this so much on your, thank own. you. I, really I appreciate do. it. I, I, I appreciate you inviting me. And I, I don't know if I asked before, but are you of any relation to Neil Katyal, the, the um, former solicitor general? And I think he is the most um, prolific um, appellate. Uh, he's had the most oral arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court. Do you, do you know if there's any relation there? <laughs> None that I'm aware of. Okay. But if he does any good things or any more good things, then sure, I'll take credit. For I'm say, yeah, we're definitely, uh, we're definitely part of. I'm the related yeah, he's, through he's a just, podcast. That's right, <laughs> my uh, my cousin Neil. Yeah, but I, again, I I wanted to ask you that for a few years because um, when I see the name, you know, Katyal, I think that you know Neil Katyal, who is you know he's kind of a, he's an icon, I guess, amongst. Mm -hmm you know, Supreme Court, you know, lawyers, and he's, he's a, a brilliant, brilliant legal mind. And so I'll ask my again, parents, but not, not that I'm aware of. Not that, you know, very, very cool. I mean, again, maybe somewhere, you know, distant along, along Perhaps. the uh, family tree. Well, I mean, I, I would love an opportunity at some point for you to get, you know, put the headphones on and you get, you know, you be, sit in the interviewer chair and, and get to ask you all sorts of questions about who, you know, who I, I at the, at the onset, I thought that, you know, somehow that that was going to come about and I, I was scared of that prospect. And I, to ping off of what you said earlier, I, I do find myself living vicariously through myself when I put on my teacher hat. And, and for the same reasons you shared, I know that no matter how sick I am, no matter how big of a mistake I make in class, mathematically, I almost certainly know more math than anyone else in the class. And that, you know, that, that shield of, of protection allows me to act out the fantasy that I am an extrovert, that I can walk into a room and say hello to 36 new people, conduct myself with a reasonable amount of, digni of dignity and, and control and poise and have these people listen to me. But then the moment I go back to my office, I realized, whoa, where did that come from? That guy is cool. That guy yeah. is awesome. He, he can talk to people and he can make them feel at ease about a topic that they don't like. And then I, I come back to the the privacy of my room and it's, don't talk to me. What, why, why are you here? What, what's going on? Why are you asking me questions? Oh. So going in, in fr it's almost as if, you know, I put on the Superman costume the moment I open the door and... 
when I leave, it's okay. I'm back in my shell. Like, don't, don't, don't bother me or, or ask me questions. Through some self-reflection, I've also come to realize that, you know, by the same argument that I have stuff to gain from these conversations, uh, through my relatively banal life, maybe someone else has something to gain that I am not giving them credit for, uh, or that I'm not giving myself credit for, that maybe someone hears me saying something and maybe that strikes a chord with them and maybe they feel comfortable talking with me on, on commencement or whatever the case might be. And that right. widens my circle. So I, at the beginning, I was scared of the prospect of someone bringing it up. Now uh, I'm still scared, but I understand that I see the value in it. And maybe that's right. very, very narcissistic that people would you know gain from something I say, but uh, I, I'm playing the probability there that yeah. it's probable, improbable perhaps, but maybe not impossible that I say something stupid and someone says, oh, I did that same stupid thing. <laughs> uh, I see. I think it's, yeah. Well, for me at least, yeah, that, that's highly probable, you know, <laughs> that, that I've done something that's, that's stupid. And, you know, I, again, I, I really have, have enjoyed the, um, the opportunity to come, to come. Thank you. Here. I, I appreciate I your, love- your willingness as well to share. And I would, I would love again to, to do it again or to, to help out. And, um, I know that, um, again, you, you mentioned, you know, questions and things like that, you know, for, for others that there were, um, that I guess were asked of, of me or that, that whatever, let me know if I can, if I can help out, you know. Oh, I, really I was going to send you an email, email immediately after we got done, but I'm interviewing someone else tomorrow and to hopefully okay. continue the tradition, uh, much in the same vein that people had suggested questions not knowing that it was going to be you. Uh, I'd love to get four to six to as many questions as you feel comfortable writing uh, to ask the individual tomorrow. Sure. I will. Absolutely. Yeah. Send those to you. And yeah, that's that definitely. And if you don't mind, put in a a plug for other people to appear on the podcast. I find that, uh, well, in fact, it happened yesterday. Matt texted me that I should reach out to someone that either didn't see my emails or saw them and chose not to respond. And uh, all of a sudden I have a yes out of what I thought was a no. So I feel like I I need to socially engineer future interviews by, by getting other people to convince unsuspecting participants to say, Hey, you should go do that. Go do it. Go, 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 go do it. Go talk to Anurag. I I think that, yeah, I I think that there's, yeah, there's, there's a whole handful of, of folks that, um, that would be interested in, and up to this point, all I saw that it's, it's strictly Palm Beach State professors, right? It's only folks or... I've reached out, well, the project was, the intention was people that are in the Palm Beach State College community. So I've reached okay. out to staff members, I've reached out to admin, and I haven't okay. gotten any bites from there. Uh, the it. closest I got was with an associate dean at one of the campuses who said, I would love to do this, but when time permits. Um, mm-hmm. So at least there was a partial yes. Maybe it's a no, it's a polite no, I don't know. But uh, this person, I guess, has a history of being genuine. And so I, I, I'm taking it at face value and thinking when things calm down, maybe I'll be able to make a then you'll have someone make yeah. a schedule yeah. time or appointment to, to meet with them. But yeah, if you can put in a good word, I would very much appreciate it. 
For sure. And again, I wish you, you know, wish you all the best with this. When I was reading, like this is a couple months ago, I think, when you were talking about the growth of the show and the, mm-hmm. the, the listenership and folks, you know, from all over, right? All over the globe, really, that can kind of tune in. That, that's been mind boggling. I, I don't know who's listening and I wonder if it's bots, but <laughs> <laughs> some, well, some, some guy in Australia did email me back saying, uh, after, who was it? Dave Rossman's episode. Uh, where he asked me what Netflix documentaries I talked about uh, on the episode. And he, he said that, you know, it popped up on iTunes out of nowhere and he thought that it was going to be about surfing and it wasn't. And <laughs> he was like, oh, I enjoyed the episode. I, ho- I heard the whole thing. And can you tell me the documentaries that you were going to send to Dave to watch with his sons? I was like, wow. sure, Australian dude. <laughs> that's that's cool unknown person exactly across the globe Why so not? yeah it, it that's been one of those I, I thought that maybe 10 people would listen to it and and i was perfectly fine with that i i didn't really have so much invested in it to where i was you know looking at the user counts or, or listening counts and now it's a it's a fun game to see you know these little yeah. red spots light up all over the world and oh. i i, I and that again reinforces the idea that people will find value in 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 sharing stories even if they're of banality uh, that you That's know it. people crave connection and, and this is a that. great way to, yeah it's a great way to do it i agree i mean i i think that that's and that's why again you know you can't like a, a commercial for the I need a title. Yeah, it's it's one of those one of those things that you know know that hopefully somebody's enjoyed my boring story. You know, hopefully somebody enjoyed the the cute little voices that came in here and interrupted mine. I'm <laughs> because, sure they would. Uh, exactly, exactly. Well, I, again, I, I can keep going, but I'm sure at this point, as we've talked for a minute, um, I think oh we're gosh. heading into. I think we've crossed into, and I know that in podcasting. In the podcasting world, this is an actual thing. We have crossed into Joe Rogan territory. I don't know if oh, you're wow. familiar with him. Oh my gosh. Yes. He, yeah. he does long form interviews and I, I never thought that anyone would care enough to talk to me for three hours and 14 minutes. But <laughs> <laughs> thank you. See, thank you for being very I, generous I, with your time. I love talking and really truth be told, what else am I going to be doing right now? If it wasn't this, um, I can, I have work to do, but mm-hmm. yeah tomorrow i'd probably be playing animal crossing or or something like that with my with my older son so um, well i'll let you get to that on that note exactly uh, awesome i'll take leave and hopefully we get to do this again absolutely thank you so much and um be safe be well and uh, all that other stuff is you as well thank you please let everyone know it was a pleasure meeting them i will absolutely and and, and thanks for uh thanks for including me sure take care Thanks for making it all the way to the end. Until next time, for another 80 times, take care.